have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chickie Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917 889 Three six seven five. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is common sense. adventure here on Southern Sense, live on Block Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star Daily News. And I hope you can hear me because I'm not watching my meters go off today. So I'm just hoping that you can hear me. And I'm going to ask, can you hear me? Because I don't know. Oh, there we go. Now my meter's going off. Welcome to another adventure here on Southern Sense Live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Global Enlightenment Radio, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube. Yes, still up on YouTube. Not exactly banned, but just got my wrist slapped the last couple of times. But we also are proud to announce that Southern Sense you can find on Substack.com. Just go to at Southern Sense. Don't put a space in the middle this time. Also up on Apple, Spotify, formerly Stitcher, now Simplecast, as well as TuneIn and PocketCast. And coming to a podcast location near you soon. I'm your hostess with the least mostest, the radio chickadee, Annie. And my co-host is a little delinquent in getting into the show today, but he will be joining us rather shortly, Curtis C.S. Bennett. And we have a lot to talk about, and I want to thank everyone that is joining us now live up on Facebook, as well as our home page, which is Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. You can watch the video there. Uh, as well as, let me double check to make sure the video is going up on YouTube. And yes, we are. We're up on YouTube, and the video is playing everywhere it should be. Yay, we got it working today. Anyway, we've got ourselves a great, great lineup, and already working on next week. We have two guests already lined up for next week, and today we're going to be speaking to, 
uh, to uh, Denuncio Barton. He is the pastor of We Are One Ministries in Orlando, Florida. He also homeschools his children, and he is the chair of the Orange County Republican Executive Committee's Education Committee. Uh, also have Taya Shoemake. Uh, she has a fantastic website for homeschoolers called homeschoolreadyornot.com. And then we have a fellow podcaster and political commentator, Christian Watson, will be joining us. And we follow up at the end of the show with our heritage guest, our reserve corporal, I'm sorry, uh, David Ditch. He's a senior policy analyst in the Grover Etch, oh, teeth and backwards now, Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget at the Heritage Foundation. And we definitely are going to be talking about the federal budget, which has passed the House yesterday, the Senate today, and we'll be heading to Biden's desk to sign. It seems like Curtis is having a little problem calling in, so as soon as he does, we will get him on the air to talk. And like I said, there is a lot to talk about besides um, homeschooling and what is going on with that today in today's uh, environment. We're also going to be talking about the presidential elections, uh, the prosecution of President Trump. Uh, This is Pride Month. Uh, We just had our last weekend Memorial Day, and that's not as important as Pride Month, it seems. Uh, We will be talking to Christian Watson about that also. Also, we'll talk about the budget and what is in it and what isn't in it. And I'm looking through all my little scraps of notes and everything else, and holy cow, we have, I'm telling you, I've never seen a political season and things going on in our nation as crazy as they are today. But again, we have, like I said, a lot, a lot to talk about. Again, welcome those that are here in the chat room on Blog Talk Radio and those who will be joining us up on my homepage at southernsense.com as well as over on Facebook. I want to welcome you there as well as up on YouTube. If anyone's looking for me on YouTube, you will find me under Southern Sense 4962. And again, let you know we're also up on Substack at Southern Sense. Don't put a dash in the middle or anything, just all lowercase. Now up on Substack and going on all the other locations. We're getting there. We're expanding. <clears throat> Let me catch my breath. <laughs> all right. Uh, again, I'm waiting for Curtis to be able to call in. He's having some problems with his telephone system. With that said, those that listen to our show know that we start each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go out to Reserve Corporal Joseph Johnson. He is with the NISA Police Department in Oregon. His end of watch was Saturday, April 15th of this year. And this is coming from KTVB. And it reads, Honor, Integrity, and Service aren't just three words in NYSA Police Department's mission statement. They also help to describe late Reserve Officer Joseph Johnson. Joseph exemplified that. Police Chief Don Ballou said, Honor, integrity, service, that's him. Johnson lived in Ontario, Oregon, and worked as a mental health officer at the Oregon Department of Corrections. He served as a reserve officer in his free time and died in the line of duty Saturday night, April 15th. He was only 43. Johnson's a husband. 
He's a father. He's a brother to us, Baloo said. He's not going to be replaced. Police arrested Rene Castro, 36, the man suspected of shooting and killing Johnson early that morning. At 8.20 p.m. Saturday, Johnson responded to a call about a violent person damaging property and threatening some people at a house in Nysa, Oregon. Goldthorpe said when Johnson arrived, people at the house told him Castro had fled in his car. Johnson chased Castro through the area before Castro eventually pulled over, Goldthorpe had said. The officer, as he normally would, as any officer would have, was taking that as a traffic stop when the vehicle stops, he said. So he pulled over near where it stopped as well, and immediately, based on witness statements, the suspect, Rene Castro, just began shooting. Castro has previous run-ins with the NYSA Police Department, and Goldthorpe said Johnson knew who he was. Johnson was still in his car and had no time to return fire or defend himself, Goldthorpe said. By the time first responders arrived, Johnson had already died. Johnson volunteered at the police department for five years. He was probably their highest-trained officer, Ballou said, and extremely dedicated. Many people in the NYSA and Ontario communities are grieving. Dozens of people showed up at a vigil outside the police department Sunday night, held in Johnson's honor. Ballou said losing one of their own weighs heavily and that they'll always remember how Johnson perfectly embodied the police department's mission statement of honor, integrity, and service. Feel, you feel like you failed because in my spot, you promised your families they're going to come home, he said, and he's not coming home. I just want to thank his family for sharing Johnson's, Johnson with us and having him share his time and letting him be as a family with us. And this is from Leslie Thompson of the Argus Observer. And she writes, April 15th was Johnson's end of watch, a phrase commonly referred to for an officer killed in the line of duty. He died while responding to a domestic disturbance. Johnson is one of 30 law enforcement officers across the United States who have died in the line of duty this year alone, according from information from the Officer Down Memorial page. In December, Johnson was awarded for his outstanding performance from Nyson Police Department. He was humble about it when posting it on his Facebook page, stating that everyone in the department could have just as easily received the award. Doing volunteer work was never about recognition. Johnson wrote, Being presented with this was definitely unexpected and humbling. I don't do what I do for the accolades. I do what I do because I enjoy it and our department is failing. And I will note before I continue that as a reserve officer, Johnson was an unpaid police officer. He volunteered his time. And what he did was from his heart. And she continues, During a news conference on Tuesday, Mayor County District Attorney David Goldthorpe expressed his heartfelt sympathies to Johnson's family, stating that he had many. Corporal Johnson had many families because his literal family, 
He had his full-time employment department of corrections family. He had his city of NYSA family. He had his NYSA police department family. He had his city of Ontario family. And I believe he also had his religious community as a family. Goldthorpe stated that in any of these family groups, anyone close to Johnson was going to be going through some sort of grief over his loss. Former NYSA Police Chief Raymond Ray, who worked at the department until 2021 and who hired Johnson, spoke candidly about grief during a phone interview. Prior to Johnson joining NYSA's reserve officers, he and Ray had met years prior. This included when Ray trained him as a correctional officer in the Oregon Department of Police Safety Standards and training in Salem. Then years later, during a Bible study group for first responders. People say processing grief is easy, he said, noting that he has learned otherwise as a counselor. Some people you grieve forever. Sometimes we build around it, and sometimes you are still in denial the rest of your life. And every time you think of that person and feel love in your heart, you are going to grieve them. Ray, who now leads the Tillamook Police Department, plans to attend the funeral. He said over the weekend he had spoken with the nice police chief, Don Blue, who was doing a great job. He noted there's a lot of pain and hurting and guilt happening right now, especially for the chief. Ray said the hardest part of being a chief is that of asking people to go into harm's way when they can't be there. Emphasizing that one goes down on your watch. It hurts hard. What Gray is carrying in his heart is that the Johnson he remembers, which includes a man who would bear a hug him while laughing and shaking the chief in an effort to get him to laugh with him. Not only did Johnson have a full field training with 320 hours in the academy, quote, he was just a good dude. Man, I am going to miss him, unquote, Ray said. He said he breaks his heart for Johnson's wife and children, who he had seen grow up. Joe loved life, he said, telling how Johnson could light up a room, especially with laughter. This was evident in a video clip shared from Lay, from NYSA Sergeant Arm, Greg Armetta's wedding, <clears throat> when Johnson was the best man. In the video, wedding attendees cheer Johnson on as he is smiling, dancing, sprinkling rose petals and interacting with guests, including giving one a hug. At a news conference, Baluth thanked numerous people who have offered support, including peer support for his staff and family. He said the greater community has really pulled together, noting that he was overly humbled for that. Furthermore, he thanked the NYSA police family, including Johnson's, who are taking the hard hit of supporting not only us, with their own emotions. Blue said that Johnson was a fine man and a fine officer. And this is from Assistant Director of Operations for the Oregon Department of Corrections, Rob Pearson, as it was posted in KTVB.com by Duke Binkley. And he writes, during the service, Pearson read a poem on behalf of Johnson's family titled, 
The Thin Blue Line, which was written by Kay Lakota in honor of Corporal Joseph Johnson. And Kayla writes, They're gathering up in heaven, those whose hearts bleed blue. They hear another one's coming, his time on earth is through. There's a ripple in the fabric, a tear in the thin blue line. A sacrifice was made, an officer in his prime. They stand guard at heaven's gate, wearing the dress blues. Heads are bowed in silence. When he arrives, they all salute. Then they'll slap him on the back and welcome him inside. Though their hearts are grieving, they're also filled with pride. He bravely gave his life to protect those he served. Justice and freedom, he stood for every word. Our hearts are with his family. We grieve their sacrifice. May they feel our love as we pray for them tonight. On earth, they are gathering. The gunman doesn't stand a chance. Those who hold the line will take a backward glance. Eyes looking forward. There's, there's no place he can hide. One of theirs was taken. They'll stand that thin blue line. Take up where he left off. Finish what they must. We pray for their safety. And in our God, we trust. That goodwill will once again triumph, though the devil takes his due. Every heart determined, God bless our men in blue. A final note. The city of Nice in Oregon is renaming the North Park to Corporal Joe Johnson. It'll be called the Corporal Joe Johnson Memorial Park. The change was approved unanimously during a special meeting. Joseph Johnson was the nicer police reserve officer shot and killed Saturday, April 15th, just a few blocks from North Park while responding to a call. He had previously worked part-time as a campus safety officer for the College of Idaho. A ceremony will be held on Tuesday, June 13th at 7 p.m. at the North Park, featuring the Oregon State Police Honor Guard. Today's show is dedicated to Reserve Corporal Joe Johnson. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women that serve as first responders. Be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. We also dedicate this show to all the brave men and women out there that serve in our military, defending and protecting this nation against enemies, foreign and domestic. We dedicate this show and may God bless each and every one with a song from Tiffany titled Soul of the Nation. Corporal Johnson, your end of tour. We'll take it from here. Rest in peace.
Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star Daily News, up in iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, still not completely banned, just put into YouTube Gitmo <laughs> up until the end of this month. So for another 29 days, I'm in TubeMo. <laughs> That's a new new term for YouTube Gitmo, TubeMo. Anyway, you'll also find us now on Substack, substack.com. Just go look for at you know, the little at symbol Southern Sense. We're up over there. Up also now up on Apple, Spotify, Simplecast, formerly Stitcher, uh, TuneIn, and PocketCast. These are the new ones that we're up on already. And we're gaining more and more ground with more distribution out there. Uh, well, welcome, my co-host, a little tardy, a little behind, but we'll forgive him. <laughs> Good afternoon, <laughs> Curtis. Steve you. Bennett. I think... <laughs> I would have had an easier time getting into a Trump rally at the last minute than getting on today. Skype just was <laughs> not right. And I think what happened is I had one of those fraud alerts on my um, debit card, and I had to get a new debit card, and I didn't get the information to them in time when it came for them to credit or to debit uh, my account. Uh-oh. And that's why I hate that. Uh-oh. You know, Every time they do that, I have to remember, okay, who all I'm doing business with through my card. <laughs> Well, I know how you feel because I went and ordered something online, and the way the transaction went through uh, PayPal, I used my PayPal debit card because I get cash back at the end of the month. I mean, hey, listen, it adds up. And uh, mm-hmm. for whatever reason, something told me there was something hinky about the transaction, just the way it went through. And sometimes when you're dealing with someone online, even listening to their uh, – not listening, but uh, – Watching how they type their, and their grammar gives you a hint that the person's not native uh, born here. They may not live here in the United States. And I just, something told me something was hinky about the whole thing. And consequently, um, I had two, two separate transactions linked to this one purchase. And boy, it caused a headache. And finally, finally, I had to file a complaint with the uh, Federal Trade Commission, with the FBI, file with my bank, and then file a dispute with uh, PayPal. So I should be getting my money back, thankfully. But I had to go through all those extra steps. So if something seems a little hinky online, believe me, trust your gut, it is. And I, I don't go into these situations. Very rarely do I put up a dispute with PayPal. Very rarely. And I've been with them <laughs> since PayPal started. And that goes back to the 1990s. Which goes to show, you know, how much. And even though they sometimes pull stunts here and there, but I have been with them ever since then. And um, I got on the phone with them, and within minutes they had my account untied so I can breathe again and (laughs) get my money back at the end of the month (laughs) with my PayPal debit card. But I know everyone else says there's these new ones out there to try them. Um, I will I'll eventually, but I've been getting the money back. I have so many, like you said, so many accounts tied to it that I automatically have payments made through, yeah. and it's just very convenient at this point. But we have our first guest in on the line. I want to welcome back to the show, Pastor Demencio Barton. Good afternoon, Pastor, and how are you today? Good afternoon. I'm doing quite well. Glad to be back and. um it's a good day today. Just uh, we've had a lot of good things happen here in our state. I, 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 
I'm a part of a lot of things towards getting education um, in line in my area. And, um, no, no, it's just been a good time, a great weather. Uh, we're just having a it's a we just had a big event for homeschoolers and with all the different things that we have um, as far as like the bills house bill one and stuff like that which was a great success a lot of homeschoolers are now learning they have money available to their families for for their educational needs and um oh no it's just been a nice time right now for us here well it's good to have yeah, you back. Um- Well, South Carolina followed the great state of Florida, and we also now have the ESAs, the Education Savings Accounts. Uh, It's not as generous as yours. We're about $2,000 difference. I think yours is $8,500. We're about $6,500. But still, that is a good benefit in the parent's pocket, and it's a good tool for them to make a decision on how their child's educated. And we've got to get people to say, you know, homeschooling is not a bad thing. And if you look mm-hmm. at it, it it is really more beneficial because now the parent doesn't have to go to according to the school schedule. The, now they go according to their schedule. Yes, yes. I know uh, my wife and I, we went through the whole uh, public, uh, private, it was Christian private, and then we went homeschool. And we finished out the last well, with our last child, she never had to go to public. But um, we did the – what about – 17, 18 years of it, and it worked out fine for us. I, it would have been nice to have had, had that $8,500, but, you know, or 6500 whichever one, but we definitely did it. Homeschool, I think the biggest thing for it is the intimidation factor for the moms, the dads, you know. We've been brainwashed, I believe, into thinking that we cannot train our own kids. And that's yeah. that's one of the that's one of the wildest lies because throughout the history of mankind, it was up to the families, it was up to those parents to train those children, just like the Bible saying the way way that they should go, so that they'll have a future, they'll have something that was that they'll have something of value, and literally this little one hundred two year hundred well about two hundred year experiment that we've had. You know, you have parents, their children go to school, and they don't even know their children by the time the the system's done with them. Exactly, exactly. Now, there recently was an article up in the Washington Post, which MSN um, reposted by Peter Jameson. I don't know if you had the displeasure of reading this article, but it centers around a family, and they were homeschooled. But they were Mm -hmm. with, I would say, almost a cult. It was a Christian cult, but very strict, and they had um, an unusual interpretation of the Bible, to uh, put it politely, Um, Mm -hmm. and the adherence to it to the point where the children were literally beaten as a toddler. Mm -hmm. The parent would put the child on the ground and say, if that child reaches for something, smack their hands until they know they don't reach for anything until they ask your permission. I'm sorry. You don't do that. Yeah. Well, this is these are the extremes, and what they're uh-huh. trying to paint in, in this article, and it's rather lengthy, and I printed it out, and it's got what? Let's see, two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve, uh, fourteen pages. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I printed yeah. out. So it's basically a book, and it details everything that the, these two individuals went through. But this is the extreme 
end of the spectrum. It's not the norm for homeschooling. And we've been trying to bring homeschooling to our nation since the 80s. But Mm -hmm. if you think back to the 60s, the hippies did it. And no one bothered them. They were so anti-system, anti-establishment, but that was perfectly fine. Right. But now when we try to do it in a manner which is compassionate, but yet will produce a, an individual into our society that is a worthwhile individual, a productive individual, an individual that will help bring this nation forward and be a benefit to those around them. But when I read this other article, I go, no, something's wrong here. Where yeah, was... I oh, I, I was just I mean, about to say and yeah, when just um, following what you were saying, your point, one of my degrees, I'm an engineer, and one of the things we were told is you must always scrub your data. You're going to always have outliers, you know, extreme data that it may have happened, but it, you cannot design your system based off of the outliers. you got to keep it within so many um and you got to keep it where the bulk of your data is, because you, if you design for these parameters, yeah, 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 your parameters. Because if you if you design for those other things, you'll end up not being able to get your system done. It's just it'll cost too much. It'll be too unrealistic because this is something that may it's sort of like um, buying land and you look and it's like the five hundred year floodplain, the one hundred year floodplain. It's like those pieces of land. You, they're sweet to have, but you have to make sure that you build your house with something more along, along the lines of that 100-year or less because that's more probable of happening. And it's just the, you have to have wisdom with how you do it. When I hear those types of things, I'm like, well, I understand that that has happened. I understand it's possible for you to have somebody radical like that. That wasn't for me. Actually, for my family, one of the biggest ones that they had was, oh, your children, they're not going to be able to be uh, be social. They're going to be just like some little hermit. I mean, my kids came out of the block, all four of them. They were running their groups in college. Uh, they were leaders and, you know, in all in these different areas. And it's like, and successful ones at that. They had very well attended meetings and, and just they were, they were voted on for, for different roles. They've just done very, very well, not just academically, but socially. And I, it's amazing how the stories get convoluted, and if you don't do your research, you'll end up believing a lie. But like you said, you cannot trust someone's um, information that's just building it on these outliers like that's the norm. Because even in my, in my experience, and that's a lot of years with my wife and I of having homeschooled and still work with homeschool families, yes, you'll run into at times those families, but what about the things you run into in public school? Yeah, you you yeah well, you yeah. run into these crazy situations of their own there. Go ahead. Yeah, so I was say, you know you have where, where a, a parent would be so disassociated from their child and the care of that child that the school and the government ends up becoming the parent because the parent is for whatever reason, be it drugs, alcohol, or mental illness or whatever, uh, where you know you've got it from. Uh, 
the extremes on either side. They exist. But with homeschooling and our public education system, we have to find that middle of the road. And they can work hand in hand. You know, uh, one of the myths is that if you're homeschooling, you don't participate in any school extracurricular activities, which is a myth, correct? Yes, it is. Tim Tebow was a good, a very good poster child of that's not the norm. I mean, that's not the way it has to be because that was what he did. He actually was a homeschooler. Uh, we met and talked to his mom um, uh, once, and uh, she was speaking at an event. We got a time. We got a chance to spend a long time, a lot of time with her, and she explained how she raised her kids, her and her husband, and. You it even and here in Florida, and I know in most of the other states, and not all of them, there is a combination. Yes, you're homeschooled, but your tax dollars are still going to public school. So whether you want to uh, do sports or even if they have trade opportunities and training, there's multiple things that you can do inside of your public school system while being homeschooled. Exactly. And we they actually seeing now with the pandemic, uh, the growth of homeschool pods, they call them, oh, yes. where families, oh, yes. we get together and interact with each other. So the children do get social activities. And a wonderful thing is the interactivities with the child being more free to go outside the home, outside your learning little learning pod into, say, a nature preserve or a science museum or any other trip that would be educational for that child. And then it's all social and interactive. They're actually going to be more social, more able to adapt to society than a child in a public school. Yeah, uh, one of the big things for us that we, you know, uh, for us, we started in 99, right? And we didn't have a lot of examples, but some of the benefits, like how you're mentioning right now, were just golden. Like for us, we had a we developed a process where our kids we were we were we followed sort of like a bat mitzvah, a bar mitzvah type of concept, where by the time they're ten, eleven years old, we started to let them be a part of focusing in on what they want to do in their future, what they they'd like their life to be like. Well, one wanted to do firemen. So we got him into the youth fire um, – um, I forgot what it was called, but it's a fire academy. And he started making all these friends and buddies that have the like heart, and we were taking him to his classes, and this is on top of regular school, and he's doing it. Well, another one wanted to do ice skating. So she's making all her friends in her ice skating groups. And, and I mean, you had your normal camaraderies, but then you had people of like heart and like mind. They were with them, not to mention the church and stuff – but you you just had their they had their own things and one of the things that was, one of the things I wanted to hit on was un unlike in public school, it takes a lot of effort in public school environment to help to hone a kid in on what their real bent is, where they really would mm-hmm. where they really flourish. But in that homeschool environment, I must admit it really worked well for us. We did everything from astronauts to <laughs> Because we, we let them fly, right? We, I mean, literally, you know, oh, well, astronaut, we'll go down to Kennedy Space Center or whatever. We did videography. We did um, sewing for our artsy, craftsy, and, and, and all these different things. But it's like let them be them. And one thing that I must admit happens that um, a lot of families don't realize the value of, 
when you have your child in public school, a lot of times, and I'm not dissing public school right now, I'm just saying a fact, a lot of times you don't even realize it, realize why the camaraderie and the trust levels are so much, start to become so much higher in their, their network of friends and relationships there than at home. But one thing was laid to my heart by God, and I'm just going to say the way it happened when we first started out with our kids, and it was simply this. The way their hearts are, st- are stolen from us is interest placed in what they're interested in. The world and the people outside of the family, because the family's trying to make ends meet, trying to get things together, and we keep and we were we're trying to do the right thing and put them in things, but because we're so busy, a lot of times we seem disinterested in what makes them happy, what brings them happiness, what 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 makes their life fulfilled. But then they have friends, they have teachers, they have counselors or whoever that. Because they're there at the school, they're at the programs that mom and daddy them couldn't make, those people seem they're more involved and seem like they care more. And eventually mm-hmm. they have a bigger say in that life than the person who's feeding them and providing a place to stay because what touches a person's heart will always trump where they just lay their head. Because that, that heart will, will override everything. True. Well, this can also explain the phenomenon of why teachers and guidance counselors and nurses or whatever in a lot of these schools are convincing kids at a young age that they are have gender dysphoria, that they're not a boy yeah. or they're not a girl. And don't tell mom and dad because they're not going to understand you're here with us for eight hours or ten hours, whatever it is. We know your heart. You go home. Uh, they're busy doing whatever. Uh, you go to bed. You, you see them maybe for an hour, but you're with us the entire day. Who knows you better than us? And who mm-hmm. can tell you what is truly in your heart than those of, that are around you? So peer pressure, the want for acceptance, the need for love, companionship, and human touch is yes. extremely strong in a child. And so they're going to look for who is going to give them that. So in exactly. a way, parents abrogate that main responsibility in their child's life to a public school system. Exactly. You know, one of the things I know for us, and it, this is just another, um, just I'm glad that 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 it that it really jumped out to my wife and I. And it's you you ever real think back in your life and start to think back on when you were a child, and it was events, it was moments. You know, whatever happened when we were kids happened, but there were moments. Either ones that make you feel protected, make you feel loved, make you feel make you feel a part of the family, or there were ones that alienated. We have to make sure, and this is one of the things that we just don't realize at times because we get so busy working. We have to make sure that we're creating the opportunities to grow those moments, those memories that bind us together. See, mm-hmm. when that. Look, I, I, I got one for you. Um, we have a we have godchildren, and they and they they were they're the children of uh, one of the students that well one of the students that we helped train her and her husband, and 
we had the kids over, and one of the kids had gotten this whole thing where they uh, diagnosed us from the time she was she was a little baby, saying, oh, she'll never walk or whatever. And we were like, no, in Jesus' name, this girl going to walk. You could, that's a lie. That's right out of the pit. There's, that, you know, don't tell us that. Whether we got a massager or whatever, or lay, put oil on or whatever, this girl is going to come out great. And what happened, though, was at our house, we were there, and I just, it was in my heart, I'm like, baby, it's you and me. You and I, you're going to, first, we're going to stop just everybody carrying you. We're going to go ahead and, because they, they spend good periods of time, because we became grandma and granddaddy, you know. And it's like, we just like, mm-hmm. okay, you're going to start to do what you can do. I know you can do it. I know it. Because she had gotten so used to people carrying her that she wouldn't even try and walk. Uh-huh. I'll skip ahead. Her first steps were right on the first floor of our house, walking from, I think, my, my wife to me. Now she's running, skipping, jumping, everything. But that life moment when everybody was there, but you have to have time to do that. You have to make time to do that. It's hard to be there for those moments that not just mean something for that kid. They mean they, they just they, they they bond the families. They bond everybody together. She's that little girl and me. We're so tight. But it's just one of those things like this. Those things say I believe in you. Now it wasn't the easiest. It wasn't the funnest. For her, I know because I'm like, nah, you're going to have to come over here and get your bottle or you're going to have to, I don't care if you're crawling <laughs> over here or whatever, you're going to have to do it. And, you know, and everybody else is like, yeah, come on. That's not, I said, no, she can do it. This baby got it. But, see, what if that starts to occur all the time, those types of moments of, of building somebody up are occurring outside of the home all the time? There are bonds, yeah. there are trusts that are, that are established that you won't have the power to override, even though you're telling them right as the parents, if those moments, those points in time where that kid makes that paradigm shift that they're setting their life on and that relationship um, um, decision and foundation that they're setting everything on, if that parent isn't there all the time and someone else is the coach, the teacher, the counselor, their, their friend, when they start to have those Go ahead. I was going to say, you make a great point. It is about time. And unfortunately, in our society today, you have parents who are working long hours, sometimes two jobs to make ends meet. A lot of them are single-parent homes. Um, If the parent isn't working, some of them in rehab, or you got some that are in jail. And um, the situation just is not conducive um, to, to be bonding. Like, like you know, we would want them to, and there lies the problem, you know. And then you got our school system. Teachers are allowed to teach. They're being um, programmed to propagandize our children. And mm-hmm. most of these kids come out of school. They they, they don't have any life skills. Um, they can't read. They they can't do math, basic math. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the ones I, I'm concerned about that have no alternative um, because of the home situation. You know, I applaud and strongly support, you know, children being, you know, schooled at home. But we have to do something to reclaim our schools because 
when you look at it, if the teachers were doing their job like they should be, we wouldn't have to homeschool our children. And that's the point we need to get back to, I believe, where we can get politics and propaganda out of the school system and go back to the basics. You know, when you said that, would you, okay, over here in or, in Florida, I'm in Orange County, and, in, and work with Orange County and Central Florida, as I started to get involved with this, because I actually even ran for um, school board chair over here, didn't win, but I ended up getting in positions to be able to find out what was going on for real and, and start to become a part of, um, with others, to being able to become a part of the solution. But what I found out is, if the school system is going to work, the public school system, the parents are going to have to put in the time. If the if if the homeschool is going to work, the parents are going to have to put in the time. You, there is no way for it to work without the parents putting in the time. One of the number one complaints of the teachers, as I talked to them, was that the parents were not involved, and because the parents weren't involved the kids were going downhill. I mean, literally, I know the, what is the, the status right now, around about 50, only about 50% of our kids are actually at their reading level, K through 12. And that, mm. that's some ridiculous numbers. But the whole thing about it is the, I, it's the, I know it's a system that we have that's running people like crazy. It's a system that's made to make it be a two-parent household. I mean, excuse me, a two-parent income household. And when you have two parents running around having to make the household, and I don't even think this is a greed thing fully. I mean, some people may have greed, but nowadays it's just to exist. Two parents have to work. And, it, and, and But we're in a system where that happens. If that's the case and... You need the time of the parents for the school system to work. Because when I was a parent, when I was a kid, if my if a teacher acted like they were going to call, I mean, my butt got tight. Everything was like, oh my lord, you know, <laughs> you, oh my god, you know. And just so you know, when I say make it work, my, I still remember back in the sixth grade, I was uh, declared learning learning disabled, LSD or whatever. And um, I was not LSD. It's, it's learning, slow learning, disabled. That's it. That's it in reverse. I was slow. I was declared that during there because they had given me some tests and they declared it. Well, for about two weeks, they had come and gotten me out of my class and they put me into a SLD class, public school SLD. So here I am. I'm. They, they're having me make paper games, and so I'm like clicking and tapping the little paper games, and that's what they have me doing. Two weeks later, my mom finds out what's going on. It didn't matter whether or not she had, she had to work. It didn't matter what bill was going on. When she found out what was going on, that, 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 that Indian went on a war path. Boy, she got down <laughs> to that school. She, she read them a riot act. And, I mean, watch this. It didn't matter what a test said. It didn't matter what anybody in power said. By the time she finished, they said, oh, we made a mistake. We put your baby in the wrong place. Um, that belongs to somebody else. And then, now, somebody else's test. <laughs> somebody, somebody else's test. And they put me back in to my class. Now, if she had not been involved 
and I had to show her my grades. I had my mom didn't play. She you had to show her everything. It was like a full blown physical anything dealing with your yep. school dealing with your schoolwork. And good yep. mama. And she was and her my dad had been divorced. She was raising all four of us by ourselves and then well she also had my cousin and so she's raising five kids and yet some kind of way and it was hard. She found the time to make sure that not only we knew, but the teachers knew that she was not, she was going to be there for her kids. Now, I understand that people have it hard. I understand it's not fun, but there are things that we have to do as parents because we were given the God-given responsibility of doing it, and nobody can watch out for our kids like we can. Exactly. However, we've yep. got in today's society a disposable society and individuals who give birth to children mm-hmm. that do not take responsibility. It's easier to find an excuse. It's easier to drop the kid off somewhere. Uh, you get kids going into day, daycare, and they're not even even a year old. They're not even yeah. walking around. And you've, you've got where the child is just something there and the emotional attachment is there's there's a disconnect unfortunately and it's not the majority of society it's a small segment but because there is this small segment it is then mandated government must tell us how to raise our kid and what to teach them and this is something that you have been highly involved in in Florida because uh, you were involved in the Florida Conservative Coalition of School Board Members, correct? Yes. Yes. And, and so- which it works, works now instead of in competition in conjunction with the Florida School Board Association. But there are conflicts between the two, what you see as the role of family versus the role of the government. Uh, compared to what the government sees. So there is like a clash here, but it's up to us to say it's we the people, not you the government. Yeah, because seriously speaking, even down to what our end goals are, just just thinking about end goals, because this is one of those things that when I'm talking to a parent or and just yeah, I listen to what they're saying, it's like, well, let's just look at it basically. We can have the best laws of anywhere, but at the end of the day, People are the ones that are implemented. If you look at public school, which I understand purpose-wise, but it's also the public school has certain goals of its own. Mm-hmm. And those goals are backed by the money that they get. I mean, I'm just saying where the money comes from that keeps them open. It's backed by a lot of different things. But at the end of the day, I've been at the board meeting. Companies actually believe that our schools are supposed to produce workers that help to keep our society working, i.e. employees for the company. They believe that the schools are supposed to be doing it, so you're supposed to be putting out so many engineering-level students, so many medical, so many um, um, hospitality, so many whatever their, 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 their genre is. They're supposed to be being pumped out by these schools. Now, if you put enough pressure along those lines, which we already have and have had for way too long here in the state, the schools start to produce what's needed by the system. But 
you've now lost the whole context of what was needed for the person, what was needed for that family, what was needed for 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 the betterment of our community, at, at, you know, what was needed for that kid to fulfill why they're even on this daggum planet. There's there's a loss. People think that at times education is serving a purpose that it was never meant to achieve. And we have to realize that. We we have to realize. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, you, you've, you've nailed it directly on the head. You know, we are now producing just to just for our neighborhood. Now, you're in a heavy area where it's hospitality. I'm in a heavy area of hospitality, and that is what mm-hmm. the school system seems to focus on. But what yeah. about that child of yours that wanted to be an ice skater, the one that wanted to be the astronaut? What about mm-hmm. their dreams their aspirations. I'm sorry, I don't want my child, if they are the next William Shakespeare, to be the maid or the short Thank order cook in the nearby hotel. And they've got Thank dreams, so they have much. talents, they have abilities, and as a homeschooler, you're in the unique place to see that talent grow and come to birth. A school, yeah. they've got... 35, 40 kids in a classroom, and how are you going to pick out that one that is not going to be the shorter cook and will be the next person to land on the moon? You, you're, you just nailed it, and I'll tell you, when I was um, I was a youth pastor, right, and this was around about the time uh, 2000, right after Clinton, right going into W, right, um, Bush. And so what happened was, I was reading some documents, and I came across this YES program. And what had happened was we had been hearing for a long time that the infrastructure, the people who keep the infrastructure of the United States going had gotten very old, and we didn't have the replacement because a lot of the kids wanted to get college degrees or they wanted to, do, they wanted to have um, uh, white-collar jobs and all of this. And I was looking, and this is around about the time when you saw Dirty Jobs, the whole concept of Dirty Jobs come up. And I was looking, and I was just paying attention to it. And what happened was I was looking at kids, and I was talking to them about what, where they were going into education and what was going on, and I was looking at the different focuses of, like, your junior colleges, your um, state colleges versus your universities, and I started to notice that the kids was, were being – in my my personal opinion, redirected mm-hmm. towards those jobs that you know, regardless of them being noble jobs, their their honest work, the kids were being directed towards those. And I gotta admit, all I could remember when I as I looked at these things was this this old TV movie. Uh, called Richie Rich. They had made the tell Richie Rich from um, from the cartoons. They made a movie. Yes. And I remember seeing the classroom scene of what was being taught to the rich kids. They were being taught um, um, economy. They were taught taught world politics. They were taught taught like, the true history of the nation. It was all these things that they were taught. And I was looking, and I'm, I'm hearing what the kids were being directed to, and I'm like. I, I came to the conclusion that you stated earlier. I understand that those are positions, but I do not give the system the right to direct my kids 
and usurp authority over their future and directing of their future from me and from my children. I want my children to be all that they could be. That's part of one of those promises, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I want them to have that. Now, if because they didn't work or because it really is their, their future, that they ended up in one of those positions, they, they didn't work, or, or maybe it was just their job skills. It doesn't mean it was a bad thing. I want it to have been them who determined that outcome, us who did it, not a system that operated like a communistic dictation of you can know you can't be higher than this or you can't be higher than that. I have been speaking this to kids since my kids were real young. You must take hold of your future because there is a plan for it. And if you do not take hold of it, your parents do not take hold of it, it will be dictated to you. Well, Pastor, you're preaching to the choir, but we've got our next guest in, so don't go anywhere because I deliberately asked Curtis to make sure you dovetail into this next individual. And I want to welcome to the show for the first time, Taya Shoemake. She is the founder of homeschoolreadyornot.com. Good afternoon, Taya. How are you today? I am doing well. Can I just say amen, Pastor? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. I just knew instinctively the two of you would get along real well. And I have to turn around and I have to yell at Drew and AJ because when they sent me your information, they did not send me a photo of you because I have a video running and I have a still of my individuals and it's got a little thing saying on the phone so people know what you guys look like. All I had was your logo to your website. So you got to tell them, I'll, I'll send you a nice headshot. So the next time I go on that crazy lady's show, she's got a picture of me. <laughs> How's that I will. Well, as luck would have it, I have a face for radio, but uh, I will try to find a good one. <laughs> <laughs> I say that too, but I do it anyway. <laughs> yes, I, I agree. I understand. All right, but we've been talking with uh, Pastor Domencio Barton, uh, who is very well involved in the Florida uh, public school system since he ran for a school board, uh, as well as homeschooling his children since 1999. Um, Mm -hmm. So he's very well informed about the system and what goes on. But you put together a fantastic website where parents can go on and get the tools to do the actual teaching. there wasn't a lot for me to poke around on, but you've got to tell me because you, I, unless I sign up and ask you to send the materials, I don't have them in front of me. So what do you provide for the parents so that they can homeschool, and how does it work? Sure. Thank, thank you for that. So um, several years ago, I procured the website because I would get inquiries every year from parents who wanted to, to consider home, or they were consider homeschooling, And they would ask me right before school started in August. (laughs) And so I thought, wouldn't it be nice to have a resource that addressed some of their questions more broadly, like a website, and and we could help more people in my state and in other states. And nothing, uh, you know, life happened, and I would continue to meet with people personally. But when COVID hit, the number of inquiries spiked, if you'll pardon the pun. And so I thought, Mm. let's dust off this website and try to get as much information as possible. Now, I'm I'm analog in a digital world, so it's slow going for me. All of this is new learning, and the the curve is certainly steep. But I have had a blast learning a lot of these things, whether it's video and editing, et cetera. 
um, the website domain, how to function, how that functions. And we are just putting up content, again, slowly but surely, that addresses those questions that new parents have. We want to encourage them and shepherd those considering the lifestyle over any real or perceived barriers. Because there are a lot of perceived barriers, uh, whether it's the socialization myth or, uh, or I'm going to ruin my children, etc. And really, at the end of the day, Anne, we, we want to help parents take ownership of and responsibility for the education, well-being, and health of their children, regardless of where they land for their ABCs. We need a paradigm shift in this country. Well, I'm going to bring the the pastor in on this one because I want, you know, both of you uh, to give me your feedback. But I found, I was looking for the statistics for homeschooling, and there's nothing out that's recent. But what I did find is from 2017, and that in 2017, over the previous five years, between 2012 and 2017, the number of black families that started a homeschool had doubled. Now, Pastor, mm-hmm. is it something that is just for you know, black families, or is this something that could benefit every family? And why are we seeing more black families becoming involved in homeschooling and not anywhere else? Well, really, I would say this. For black families, for the longest period of time, think of it like um, a dam was put up. There was a dam called civil rights, believe it or not. And... Um, mm-hmm. And what happened during that time was there was something that was associated with it, which was integration of schools. And this is something that hit Dolores, my wife, and I head on. When we decided to homeschool, and I'm going to segue into what you asked, when we started to homeschool, we literally had messages at church taught against us. It was like we had spit on ML Martin Luther King. We had spit on all of the people that had that had rode buses and fought against this that, and the other. I mean, and the whole thing was we just knew in our hearts that this was what would help our children. And we we had looked, and this is where it fought, it flows for everybody. We had we looked and we saw that our children were not looking like us. They were not valuing what we valued. They were starting to look like something or someone else. And when we saw it, we looked at each other one day and we said, if we don't change, we don't want to deal with what these kids are going to be like when they reach their teens. And this was our boys because we had two boys first and then two girls. And so my wife, God bless her, she and I, who had been living, quote, unquote, the American dream, you know, we had gone to school from low-income low, I mean, from low income families, and then we got our graduate degrees and all this fun stuff, and then we're out there working, but we didn't have time for the kids. And that was a wake-up call when, I saw my, when we really saw our boys starting to behave like someone else. Mm-hmm. Also, I think the biggest one for my wife when it hit her was one of our daughters – when uh, we had we had to have people help us, um, godparent, and we'd be paying for after school care and all that. And my wife went to get the kids one day, and our daughter ran to their godmama instead of her. Hadn't seen her all wow. day. And my wife, oh lord, she bust out crying. And that okay, what happened was she looked at me. We're changing. This is not. I mean, 
righteous indignation of a mama. She she said, no, <laughs> this is not, no. <laughs> and, well, with that and, in mind, I was going to say, I was going to say, well, well, go ahead, finish the story. I don't want to cut completely and, off because I want to know whether or not she whooped someone's butt. What I realized is that for different, this is not a white thing. This isn't a black thing or Spanish thing. This is just a people thing. If, if when our when we reach that point where we finally realize what we really want, I'm talking about the parents. We really do want to have a good family. We want to see our children do well. We actually want to see our posterity. That has no color. Yeah, it may have been like a damn burst where, where a lot of black families who had been held back from doing it because they were worried about what the community was going to think, they now are jumping and doing it because it really is the best thing for their families, and they're seeing the statistics. But because I will say this, when Dolores and I, when we finally had made those decisions and we actually saw, saw the statistics of that time, the stats literally said if you were Caucasian, um, your kids were in like the close to the 50 percentile for um, information retention, how much they learned in school. If you were um, Spanish, you were like in the upper 30-something um, percentile, meaning you're not learning a lot. You're only about 30% there. For blacks, it was like 32, 33%. When you were, when, if you were Asian, you were just a little bit over 50, probably about 52, 53% out. If you were homeschooled, it didn't matter your color. It didn't matter the educational background of your parents. You were in the 83rd to the 87th percentile. 87 is if your parents had a PhD. 83 is if they never graduated from high school. The kids performed that well. That's nearly, for, for, for black kids, that's three times better. And Spanish kids, that's roughly three times better. For Caucasian kids and, and Asian kids, you're talking about nearly twice as well. These, these types of numbers, I'm a numbers guy. You, those speak for themselves. Homeschooling works. That was the norm. Yeah. Well, Tia, with that in mind, and he's talking about how they were ostracized by the uh, churches, uh, is homeschooling only for religious families? No, I, I think the demographic in and of itself is as diverse as the population in general. I mean, I've met homeschoolers uh, of every color, of every creed, of every political end. I mean, I have met people that homeschool because they thought the public schools were too religious. And that was relatively, I know, I know. It was hard not to laugh. I, I, I kept it in until I got home. But uh, it, really, and so there are, there might be a majority, a, a slight majority of one or the other, um, but I think the pastor just laid it out perfectly. I, I will say that um, according to the National Home Education Research Institute, I believe these are, oh, I forget the year, 2022 numbers. Mm-hmm. That um, of the homeschool families right now, and I think it's it ranges. The growth per annum ranges from two to eight percent over the last decade. So the demographic is growing. People know that it works, and it works for all the reasons the pastor just mentioned. And the uh, non-white population is forty-one percent of mm-hmm. those families. And so, mm-hmm. again, I I totally agree. It doesn't. You know, if you want to parse out the demographics, fine. 
But I agree, it, it's not a color thing. It's not anything else other than, again, parents taking ownership of that responsibility, the blessings of liberty that we have to homeschool our children and, uh, and train them up. But I love yeah. your story, well, Pastor, about your wife. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, God bless her. God bless yeah. her. I'm surprised she didn't walk up to the principal and deck him. <laughs> well, I, and, and I have to say this, if you'll allow me. When you were telling that story, I thought of Isaiah 50, of setting your face like a flint. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, she was resolute. Yeah, that was going to happen. <laughs> yes, it was. I must admit, when Mama... When Mama said what was going to happen, all I knew was say, "Yeah, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am, yes, we doing ma'am. it just like that. We will make we will make the changes, yes, ma'am." Well, well, here, Pastor. Now we discussed this earlier, and you were a youth pastor, and you're still, mm-hmm. I'm sure, ministering to a lot of youth today. Uh, one thing mm-hmm. I had uh, the youth pastor of my church came to visit us. Uh, this was when my husband, my late husband, had gotten really ill, and they would come to the house to minister to us. And um, he was talking about being the youth pastor for our church, and he said he was having a hard, hard time. Because the way the kids were being raised today, they didn't know how to socially interact. They could not look you straight in the eyes to begin with. They didn't know how to greet a person for the first time by placing their hand out and doing a firm handshake. They didn't even know how to approach to get a job application much less go up to one of those kiosks and fill one of those things out. I can't tell you how many times I'll go through like either Walmart or Lowe's and see the job kiosk, and there's the parent filling out the application for the kid. Our children today are losing their social skills. So is homeschooling somewhere where they're going to lose more social skills or will they gain them? I think what we have to do is we have to remember where does – where where do our true social skills come from? Now I'm gonna I'm gonna hit it from a different angle. I believe it comes and stems from our self confidence. We we can think about it. We can be in a room with people and if we're not confident in ourselves and what we have to say, do we speak? Or do we kind of hold off to ourselves, kind of get back into ourselves? I, when I look at how when I interacted, and, and, and not just then, now we still do stuff with youth, but, you know, just a pastor now, when I look and I see building confidence in a kid, not bravado, not pride, but a true confidence, a kid understanding their self-worth, when you build those types of things, that's really for me, why the kids' eyes are so low. Their eyes are low mm. because it's, a, it's sharing something about how they think about themselves, how they think about what they have to say, how they think about how it may be received. It's, it's saying something to me. One of the, and I'll share this here with you. One of the biggest uh, big, big ideas, like VeggieTales, big ideas I had while youth pastoring was, one, I needed to get the buy-in of these kids. And two, I needed to let them know that I believed in them. And so what I would do is this. One of the things I do is I would share with them that I believed in them, but what I made it a point to do, and not as a show, was to tell all the other adults, and I'd go to bat for them, how great the group is 
that I have. And this is what I say. God has never in my life called me to work with losers. I have always, it's always, no matter what, he's always given me winners. And I've never had a percent off of 100% on that. These got to be the best kids because you have to believe it as the person who's overseeing them, whether you're the parent, whether you're the youth pastor, the teacher. You have to believe that those kids are worth it for them to believe. And that isn't something you just say. It's something they pick up on and how you interact with them. I had to be convinced, and I was, that they're winners. Therefore, they became convinced that they were winners. The more they believe it, the more they want that atmosphere. The more they want that atmosphere, the more they open up in that atmosphere and they communicate with you. And I taught them, you have to, I say, guys, listen, you're going to help me to develop your culture. I'm not going to tell you what your culture is, meaning for their classroom and for everything. I know I have my basics, but I'm saying, y'all, what do you want? They say, well, we don't want a bunch of clicks because you start to find out what's happening in their world. And they'll say, well, what we want to do is we want to have, have things be like this. We would like to have some fun, but we do want to learn something. And then I say, okay, well, help me to figure out the schedule. And by the time we're done, it's their class. It's their vision. It wasn't just me having one for them. It was theirs. They're an integral part. I get buy-in. They, and then one of the other Go ahead. Forgive me. I got on a roll. No, I, start talking. I know. I know. Somewhere along the way, I go, whoa, put the brakes on there. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, Jay, I wanted you to respond because uh, you work socializing into your curriculum. And after you answer that, we do have a caller that's in on the line. She's raised her hand and has been so patient. I'll bring her on after you uh, give us your response. Because that's what I, I'm seeing here at a lot of the homeschooling curriculums. Social uh, interactions is part of the curriculum, isn't it? It's just not an issue. And it's not part of the curriculum, and it's part of the lifestyle. Every opportunity, every time you leave the house, and if you're a homeschooler, you know that it's a misnomer. Because if you're doing it right, you're very rarely home. And so every excursion, <laughs> whether it's to the grocery store after you've we were extreme couponers because we were a one-income family. We were budget, you know, we were frugal. We would take field trips. And every opportunity, you are interacting with people older than you, people the same age, people younger than you, and you have to understand how to function in polite society. And at the end of the day, someone is socializing your children. It's going to be you or it's going to be someone else. And, and the question becomes, for how long and to what degree and what battles we're willing to fight? And I'll just give a very quick antidote and the um, I was ready to homeschool it when our children were born. My husband was not. And as a result, our oldest went to traditional school. And she was a, a very young first grader, six. She has that fall birthday. And at a parent-teacher conference, and we love this teacher, she uh, told us that in this classroom of, I forget, 20 children, they would often put our oldest at the group of desks with the children who misbehave so that she would rub off on them. Now, that's a reverse socialization. And that was, uh, uh, frankly, we got in the car, and before he turned the engine, my husband said, do you think you'd be ready to homeschool in the fall? 
And it was, we knew that because she was the firstborn, what she must thought, what she must have thought, what is she doing wrong? Why is she being punished by putting it, being put at this table? And so that's a type of socialization that people don't take into consideration. So someone is going to be socializing your children for however long. Um, It's just a matter of who, what, how long, and to what degree. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let me let me bring in our guest caller, Sweet Sue. She's a longtime friend of the show since almost our beginning. And you have a question or comment, Sue. Welcome aboard. Hi. Thank you. Yes, I've got a question in this conversation. I want to know what you think about, uh, especially I think the black community in certain places are now pushing for black segregation. They're going the opposite of what everyone fought for in the 60s, and this is also in colleges. Do you think this is pushing people for homeschooling because you don't want them in an atmosphere of segregation? And I think this kind of goes to your discussion on socialization. I think that's a very bad signal for uh, students to get, especially, you know, with what we're seeing today. Ooh. Uh, who do you want to take that first? We go for the pastor? Okay. Uh, that's no problem. Um, if I'm understanding you right, the whole thing is this push towards the segregation again. Now, I do not hold that in the same category as the homeschooling. For me, when I look at the homeschooling, I consider that as quite frankly, a family trying to do what's best for their child, trying to do what's best for their family. They want to ensure that their child is educated because our education system is broken. Um, And I really believe and earnestly believe that that's the only thing for majority or the norm. I don't really believe that that has to deal with um, trying to keep kids from from being around other kids of different ethnicities. Now, what you're saying, though, along those other lines, that movement for me is more of a liberal movement. It's more of this, uh, more of this divide and conquer system that the liberals are putting up. Because I don't really confront that in, if you would say, conservative and Christian circles. I don't really confront that uh, in any heavy way concerning blacks wanting to get out of out of this environment, or even Caucasians, or even the Spanish community. Um, I just don't confront that. That's not my norm. Again, homeschool is different. That's based off education. But the whole thing of that move, I really think that's a liberal thing that they're trying to stoke the flames of racism with again. Mm, Taya. Uh, Yes, absolutely. I agree with the pastor. It's it's an agenda-driven drive. Well, sorry to be redundant there. Um, But it is agenda-driven to sow discord in my opinion. Um, I've been involved in local, state, and national politics for, goodness, almost 25 years. And the, for instance, we also took part in the fight against Race to the Top and Common Core at the Ohio State House. Now, we were homeschoolers, but we saw that coming. If they're going to penetrate the public schools even further, they're going to the private schools, then they're coming for us next, right? And then they came for us. 
Um, so it, it's clear that there there is an agenda to continue to sow discord because divided we fall. Now, mm-hmm. that said, I grew up in an Italian uh, family and uh, culture. And when my grandmother spoke about them coming to this country, it was very clear that, yes, you could speak Italian to your family at home, but you're in America now and we're going to assimilate into the culture, and we, that doesn't mean you lose your, your culture. And I think that is what a lot of the discord is sown under. Hey, we don't want to lose our culture, so we have to be separate. That's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that has a lot to do with that. Right. Hey, like, uh, like you, I was going to say, like yeah, you, in my household. Oh, go, go ahead, Real go ahead, please. Yeah, this is important. I was not equating homeschooling as being segregating. You know, you you want your, you know, as a segregation. Uh, That's not what I meant. What I meant was, do you think parents are seeing this occurring in their school? And this is all races of parents that they don't want them exposed to something that was so damaging in the 1960s that some of them are now going to homeschooling because they can control the socialization and they can control what is taught about this. I I think, though, just along the lines of just what we're dealing with in our society, and this is me just being at the school board meetings, talking to a bunch of parents and a lot of the different advocates, even on both sides, because I have to deal with it as we, we go through bill making and whatever. Um, for me, what you're, the, the big thing for the parents right now in general is the fact that their kids are not being taught. You have 50, roughly 50% of the kids, this is across the board, are not graduating from high school at grade level. That's part of the reason colleges take. That's part of the reason college is taking so much. It's costing so much more money because the kids, after they take their placement test, they're having to go back and learn what they should have learned in tenth grade, the eleventh grade, the, for some of them the seventh grade. I still remember one guy. He had he had to go back to just regular um, general math and then work his way up. It was it was just. It's it's pathetic, and as you have parents whose kids who they they paid their taxes, they 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 kept working all this time, all these eighteen years, putting their kids, trusting them to a system that hasn't been educating their kids. This is being told to the parents that have kids that are still younger. This is the parents that have kids that are still there, and their kids to reach have graduated. They've realized, wait a minute, this thing isn't working. And it's destroying our kids. And remember, we have to go back to what the catalyst was, and the catalyst was COVID. When the parents, these moms, these dads, saw what was being taught, these agendas that have nothing to do with black, they weren't even black and white. They were LGBTQ. They were socialistic. They were undermining the, the authority of the parents. As these parents started to see this, this became the unavoidable antagonist that made parents say, if I don't make a change, my kid is going to be destroyed. And a lot of parents are just totally ticked off and mad because they feel trapped. I have to work 
single mom, but my therefore my kid has to, because I can't afford it, go to a public school, and therefore I got to, I, 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 I need to do something, which means you go to these board meetings and you yell at somebody about you can't teach this kid I'm entrusting to you this garbage because I, I, this is not what I, was, I signed up for. I really believe that that is the main thing, not, not necessarily the race thing. I think that's baiting again from the other side to hide what really is going on, the fact that parents are not as a whole imbibing or desiring to have that LGBTQ and that whole socialistic, communistic, Marxist agenda fed to their children because at the end of the day, they're the ones who are with the kids for the rest of their lives. The school was just a moment in time. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Amen to that, Pastor. I think not only do they feel trapped, I think they feel betrayed. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I agree. Wow. Excellent answers. Sue, I want to thank you for the question there. Mm-hmm. All right. Oh, man. Um Brings me up to another question, you know, is homeschooling now an accepted form of education? Because people say that if you're homeschooling, you're not going to have the test that you need to go on further into college. Is this true or not? Is it an accepted form of education that will get these kids into college? Uh, let's go with Taya first on this one. I am so glad you asked that. So I just did a video for the website on a study that Harvard put out in, I think it was late 2021. Now, Harvard, you know that bastion of right-wing conspiracy people. And <laughs> it, was, it was their uh, Institute for Quantitative Social Science. And they have a human flourishing program. And they measured, and there were five domains where they measured the term flourishing, right? And it included... Uh, happiness and life satisfaction, mental and physical health, meaning and purpose, character and virtue, and close social relationships. And homeschoolers work far and beyond public school students in all, it, well, most of these regards. And I, I, I kind of chuckled because close social relationships was one of the domains. Well, guess what you need in order to have those? You need socialization skills. So mm-hmm. I thought that was uh, interesting. But they did say that the resources were less for homeschoolers. So let's face it, there are colleges who are antagonistic for whatever ideological reasons toward homeschooling. But what they're seeing is that colleges are now, top-tier colleges, are more flexible in their mission, uh, admissions policies. And mm-hmm. now many of them are trying to attract homeschoolers. Why? Because by the time your homeschooler, and this is, there are always outliers, but for the most part, your homeschooled high schooler is pretty self-sufficient. They have time management down. They know how long it takes to write a five-paragraph essay. They understand how long math might take. So not only do they have that down, that helps them stay all four years and do better all four years. And that's what colleges want. They want that diversity they also, and I mean not in a good way, and uh, they want their students to make them look good, right? And so this study from Harvard says, you know, the well-being gap has just widened over the decade between homeschool students 
and public school students. And again, there are always outliers. I think there are still some good public schools out there with great teachers. Um, but I thought this study was very telling. That's very good. Yeah. Well, that brings me to the idea then, uh, Pastor, that they're they're gravitating towards the homeschoolers because now they need those uh, 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 endowments. They need the donations mm-hmm. for those that are, are graduates of that college. I mean, how many how many adults do you know will watch a football team or a baseball team from their alma mater and donate or then have their kids go to that same college? Endowments, getting the money into the college is their main function lately and not teaching the kids. Yeah. Yeah, I know right now, I mean, just um... – just just using one of our own kids as an example, um, we we ended up I spent a little bit of time at um, Regent University, and guess where my kid, our oldest kid, went to uh, go for law school. The one who wanted to be an astronaut actually ended up being going uh, becoming a lawyer. He went there, and as he came out, he ended up getting a pretty good job. But um, what I don't know if I could say it on here, but. He got a pretty good job position, and it went back once he sent back what had happened because he got it directly as soon as he graduated, he had the job. But it went back to the strength of the school for its training and and the respect it has. But at the same time, it went back and it showed this homeschooler who had been homeschooled ever since 20, I mean 2000, excuse me, uh, 1999, he, he came out and he performed very well. That that brings in others because he get they get to see these other students like wow that's a great school you come out and do well um, it, it it really feeds it feeds with the students and it also feeds back to money coming back to the school it feeds to the height I, I really do think that it's a well balanced thing but I, I guess my main thing that my thought was on is simply this here. In our experience, homeschoolers are doing so well in college. And they're doing so well in the workforce because they have character development. They aren't. They don't just have woke idealism. If you go back and you look, and this is what I was going to end up saying, I just remembered. If you go back and you look <laughs> and see what one of the number one criteria are for um, companies, it's faithfulness. Mm. They need people that they can trust that are going to be there and be faithful. And one thing I do believe is not being taught well in schools, if at all, is how to be a faithful person and not think that everybody owns you. And your family does a good job of making sure you understand you're a part of a unit. You're not an island unto yourself. (laughs) Amen. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I, I, it makes me think back to something someone in my family used to always say to my parents. It's like, I didn't ask to be born. And I don't think there was anyone except for our Lord Jesus that ever asked to be born. So, you know, there's, there's something in our society that says, well, if you play the victim card, if you play that entitlement card, you're going to get whatever you get. Um does homeschooling show the other side of the coin in that, Taya? Absolutely. Look, we have in society, and I say this week because it happened on my watch, and I don't know how because I'm a, I'm a Gen Xer. That means I'm really tough, but I still have a problem with email on my phone, right? So, <laughs> uh, but we have, we have somehow convinced 
society that disagreement means hate and that adversity means you're a victim. And uh, I can't think of a more dangerous paradigm for a young person to have. And we are already in a nihilistic, uh, Nietzsche-driven ideology, uh, ideology, in my opinion. Um, but I think homeschooling turns that right back on its, on its tail. Um, because it's, we are able to walk through adversity with our children and understand that, you know what, sometimes life happens and there is not anyone to blame. Yeah. You know, we, mm-hmm. have to, we have to have faith <laughs> through it. And sometimes we don't get all the answers this side of heaven, right? And that means we put it in the inbox and adversity, frankly, in, in my experience, means toughness but tender, right? You can still be tender and tough, right? And uh, does not mean you're a victim. So I, I think that homeschooling allows that, uh, whether you put it in that faith context or not, it allows people to be real with their children, to be honest with their children, and to walk through life, especially during the younger years, um, so that they are able to grow up as adults with, what's the Bible say, fat souls that understand delayed gratification. Hmm. Well, I have a question for my, both of you guys. Oh, okay, Curtis, and go ahead. I have another one to follow up on that one, and it was going to be a two-part one. So go ahead, Curtis, and I'll go after you. I was just wondering what influence or requirements do the government place on on those who homeschool their children at home? That's a great question. Um, it depends on the state in which you live. Some mm-hmm. states you just tell the school district, hey, we're going to homeschool, and they say thanks, which I think they should send every homeschooler a thank you card and a Christmas ham because we pay taxes <laughs> like everybody else, and we don't use the resources. So, But uh, I've not yet uh, uh, received that, but whatever, that's okay, because with, with any government assistance or whatever comes strings, and I don't want any more. So um, it really depends on your state. Ohio is moderately regulated, for instance. I know some states like Texas that I think they get the green light on HSLDA, meaning they just kind of say, hey, we're going to homeschool, and Texas says, great, thank you for your tax dollars. Yeah. (laughs) She said HSLDA. For anybody who doesn't know, that's Homeschool Legal Defense Association. That's a great group no matter what state you're in because they help keep you apprised of everything that's going on as far as the latest um, trends for homeschooling in your state, and you have a lawyer base or a co-op, a network of lawyers that are dedicated to fighting for homeschoolers. Yes, and they will help you. If if you're considering the homeschool lifestyle, they will help you get legal. Yes. Yes, they will. Absolutely. Also, Also, they have some pretty good competition. (laughs) <laughs> for the kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, here, what Curtis did was kind of like stole part of my question, uh, which is that, you know, we hear parents are not qualified to teach. You know, you've got the, the teachers out there that go and get their degree and go for continuing education and everything else. And therefore, the parents don't know enough to 
teach. Now, you were in on the ground floor, Pastor, when this was not a, a huge trend, and you had a huge uphill battle to go through. So are parents qualified to teach? And then I'm going to have Kay answer the second part of the question. Yeah, I mean, like I said before, when I found out that even if parents do not have a high school education, that they are they were training. This is when the number what the numbers were when I was in when Dolores and I were doing it. It's like they were actually in the 83rd and then the percentile their kids' performance and their um their, their counterparts. They were homeschooling. They had PhDs were just in the 87th. That's only a four point difference. There has that meant that. The care, the love, the time that that parent spent who didn't graduate themselves outweighed every degree. It outweighed, because think about it. Right now, today, we are roughly at 50 50. You are playing, it's like having Russian roulette. You have a 50 50 chance of your child getting an education from degreed, college educated, educators with their teaching life. But a parent who cares, who just said, I'm going to, my child is going to learn. I love my baby. I'm going to do, I'm going to, even if I have to stay up and learn the night before what I'm going to teach them tomorrow, or we're going to learn it together, my kid is going to learn, that family has bettered itself. And even that parent was learning. The evidence is the evidence. That parent does a better job as a norm. Well, now here, as a, here comes the second part of the question then, Taya. Uh, today, uh, what resources do parents have to give them the confidence to know that, in effect, they just might be a natural teacher to their child? The resources, Anne, are in, in – the pastor knows this, I'm sure, are nearly overwhelming. That's actually one of the reasons we started Homeschool Ready or Not, to help partition those that are just starting. When my husband asked me in the story that I told earlier, if we'd be ready to homeschool in the fall, I did the worst possible thing possible. I went home and Googled homeschool curricula. <laughs> and my eyes rolled back into my head. I began to cry, and I thought, what have I done? Yeah. So if you are just pulling the trigger, there are so many easy ways to start with all different types of budgets. Mm-hmm. And you don't, you don't have to go zero to 150 miles an hour right away because the first three months, quite frankly, are just about survival and you find in your role, your swing, right, mm-hmm. your family swing, getting into the lifestyle because that's what it is. And, you know, like anything that's worth it, homeschooling is, can be challenging on a good day, but not for the reasons people think. It's not because of the curriculum. It's not because of calculus. It's not because, because the resources, again, are nearly overwhelming. The main issue people have, I think, that causes them trepidation is that responsibility at the end of the day. And I liken that responsibility to when you bring your firstborn home and you're in your familiar environment and you're relaxing and the child cries and then maybe it cries a couple hours later and you realize, holy cow, no one's coming to get this kid. And (laughs) as a first-time parent, that's a little scary, right? And you go, like, for 18 years at least. Now, I realize we're always parents. Um, But that responsibility, 
with the blessing that God just gave you, taking that and extending it to education, I think it's scary for a lot of people. And I think that's really the hard part that parents try to get over before they pull that trigger. Um, But the resources are are so vast, and you can get very detailed. Um, A lot of people, for instance, have a a calling. They believe they're homeschooling because it's their calling. Others, they do it as a refuge. And I think that is the last few years, certainly, is the the latter there. Um, But I think after a two-, three-year stint, it becomes a parent's calling because you realize all the benefits of this wonderfully, fearfully made individual that God gave you. Yes, indeed. Wow. Yes, indeed. Very well said. Very, very well said. Now, Pastor, you and your wife homeschooled. Um, A lot of people say that the only way you can homeschool is if it's a stay-at-home parent. Um, Is this true, or, or did you find a way to work around it? Well, um, in our case, my wife literally ended her career. Um, she was doing very well. Actually, she was getting promoted faster than me back in the 90s. <laughs> but she she um, ended her career because of a little thing that happened. Um, Pat Robinson had a show, and he was and this was this is another one of those things that stop a lot of people from doing it. But he had a show, and he was saying about the big lie that was that had been fed to the um, uh, to the par- to parents and what it what it was in a nutshell was this the results had showed most people believe that you had to have a two parent income two people income for that husband and that wife to have their family be able to exist and what he said was their data had showed that was not true the family in the long run, and actually a lot of times and even in the shorter run, prospered more by mama, and I'm just saying traditionally, mama being home and the dad being out working than if both were working because promotions often came very quick for the one that was free to work while the other was home making sure the family worked. Mm-hmm. And for us, after listening to that wisdom that he had said, we both looked and said, you know, that makes sense for us. And so my wife, she did, and what he said actually happened. I started to get raises pretty quick because I wasn't having to run to um, the school for after-school care to try and pick up the kids, and I'm – and I'm and I'm having to leave work right at five, or and then I'm late, so we're actually in the hole because we're paying a few uh, what from fifty dollars to a hundred dollars in late fees because you get they're adding up every minute, and it was mm-hmm. just it was just crazy these things that uh, these weights and anchors that are on families by trying to maintain that that ideal that we were fed, but actually yeah. it really wasn't true. Well, Taya, what do you say to someone in today's economy that says, well, because of the cost of rent or my mortgage, the cost of food and clothing and medicine, we need a two-income family. Or to the person that is a single parent that says, I have to work, otherwise I can't afford a place to live for my kid and myself or kids. What do you say to them 
to help encourage them that homeschooling is something that they can do? If a parent, one or both, double income, single income, if a parent or both parents want to homeschool, here is what I tell them. Whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. So we're going to take three criteria into into consideration. First and foremost, community. Secondly, creativity. And thirdly, common sense. And, And under that third one comes time management, flex time, does it make sense to ask for flex time? Can I work remotely, etc. But and we also have to think outside the box. How much time does it take? How old are the children? People are shocked at how little time it takes to educate at home at kindergarten through second grade. Because it really doesn't. So much time is wasted in traditional schools on things that really don't need to be considered in my opinion i have taught in traditional schools and the time that they continually took away from my class it was maddening and it's a disservice and it's unfair it's unfair to the student and um and the teacher so i would say to them get community and we can help you find community that's part of the third information session on homeschoolreadyornot.com that'll drop next week but Finding community is key. It helps for accountability. It helps for um, finding like-minded people that are in the same debate team or sports team or club sports or whatever the case may be. And it is just a blessing for you as you go on this journey. But there are people right now, single moms or two working parents, who are homeschooling their children. They just have to get creative and they just they have to probably be a bit more structured than the uh than someone who stays home. Um so but it can be done and it is being done. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and actually just a, a thought with that was just simply one other though I dislike the whole COVID time, one of the things that doors that opened for us was a lot more jobs are from home jobs. A lot, a lot more are available. I just went down to our local, one of our local utilities, and they told me most of the people are still working from home. Yeah. And that's a big utility. And I'm like, that is an option, you know, for a person to, it may mean a career change. Yeah. And I will say this just so someone understands that I do understand after my wife did, for about five years, we were doing everything, just uh, running it. But then I realized by about 2005 or four, somewhere from there, three or four, that those boys had gotten to the age where they needed they needed daddy daddy managed daddy daddy man training to start. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> they needed. You know, they were putting my my wife through the ringer a little bit. All that energy, mm-hmm. all that boy energy. And I'm not talking about being mean. I'm just talking about being boy. Just yeah. high okay. energy, just I'm bouncing off the walls. And she needed she needed more help. And it was like, we were like, well, what will we do? Well, I was slated to become a VP. I have been told this here for years. Demencia, you're in line for VP at our utility. You're in line for VP at our utility. And it's like, hey, we got you. You're on it. And here I was. I'm getting close to all of these timings that I'm told about, and I realize if my family is going to succeed the way it's in my heart, the way God laid to my heart, 
there's a big change I'm going to have to make. Talk to my wife, talk to my pastor, and literally started planning a couple of years ahead for me to actually leave a position where everybody thought I was crazy. But hmm. we ended up starting a company and got But there are ways to do things, but it's going to take some courage. It's going to take some courage because if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. The fact that yep. it's harder, because that's one of the reasons we fell into the trap of public school that we have right now, it's easier on us to let our kids be kept by somebody else and we go work. Yeah. It's harder to try and find a solution that will really work for real for the long term. Wow. I mean, it gives a lot of people hope, and I hope if they're listening and they will go to your website. Um, I just got it. I, oh, God, brain fart here, Taya. Uh, homeschoolreadyornot.com. Um, but are, is there a, um evaluation? Is there a way that, you know, they can turn around and test your kid to determine are you meeting certain goals for their age group? Um, is there something that is done or is there government oversight? Is there something out there that if a parent is not meeting standards, there's something to help them pick themselves back up? That's a, that's a great question. So, again, this falls under the guidelines of each individual state. But, mm-hmm. for instance, um, in Ohio, we submit a letter, a notification form that we fill out that says, yes, we have this degree, high school diploma or college degree, whatever, um, we will educate X a number or X number of hours each year. Here is our intended curricula. And um, if your child is just starting school or just reached compulsory age, then that is the extent that, to which you need to notify your superintendent. But if your child um, has been homeschooled, you can submit either a norm reference test like the Iowa's or the CATS, or you can write what they call an assessment narrative, which is an accredited teacher in the homeschool community is full of them, these wonderful, wonderful people that do this for our community. And they will write, they will go through what your child has done all year. And of course, that, that means extra record keeping, but that's okay. Maybe you don't have a great test taker, but you know, the, the goal is progress. It's not to keep up with the Joneses. That does our, our children a disservice. To, um, and that's the beauty of the, of the lifestyle, really, the flexibility, that you can speed up on a concept if they get it quickly, or you can slow down if they need to spend more time on it. But when we notify our superintendent, those are the things that we send. If you are just starting out and want to get a good baseline, if your child is already in school, they should not have a problem giving you those test scores so you can take a look at them and compare them with high school curriculum or high school homeschool curriculum and see what is covered in each to make a, a, a good decision on whatever subject matter. If, um, if you don't have that information, there are several online forums available for your child to do that in any given subject. So you can, the answer is yes, and if you do fall behind, that's okay. I mean, that, again, it's, the, the idea is progress, and once that light bulb goes off, the metaphorical 
blessing of that is, is immeasurable in my opinion. When a child struggles through something and then gets it, that's a light bulb moment that a parent will never forget. And I, I think a lot of teachers do as well. Um, mm-hmm. So there are, when, when we speak to parents, we tell them, you might cover biology differently than the school. We don't have to compare ourselves to the Joneses. That's part of why we ended up in this test score Hades, in my opinion, is that my child got this and my child got that and we have to compare one another and live vicariously. You know, we're, we're doing our children a disservice, in my opinion. So the long way around, there are resources out there to help you evaluate your children and then also every year to see if there are any holes in the curriculum. And if they're not, you might look at biology and say, you know what, we're covering that next, next year, so we're good. Right. Mm. right. right. Well, you know, so, people would can say I, can that... I add can I add something to well, that? Go ahead, just Pastor, for please do. The yeah, importance of that, the, the real importance of, because Tia just covered it very well. I'm not going to do that part. I'll just say it from a family's perspective. Like my wife, one of the, the worries she had going into homeschooling was whether or not I'm going to mess up the kids, whether or not the kid's going to get educated. Oh, you know, can I do it, right? And for her, in the beginning, we had the, the two options. You know, the, the um, certified teacher look over the um, work for that year, or you take a, um, a norm reference assessment test at the end of the school year, and you you send that in to your county. Um, but what happened was we did the test at first simply because of the confidence it built with my wife yeah. that she had success successfully educated the kids and when she saw that first test and the (laughs) kids were like two three grades at least ahead of where they had they they, their um uh, um their registered grade was in what they had been learning now she just she it was the smile you know the celebration for the family because it was an affirmation that she needed I know when I was looking, I'll say, man, these kids are learning a lot. But she was just like, well, you know, did I? And so she was like, she would work them, work her, work it herself too much. And I was like, wait a minute, y'all got to take it slower. It's a marathon of years. Don't don't work so hard. You got to balance it, babe. And she'd ease off of this. She'd like, well, but, you know, okay, just five hours or whatever. I think, yeah, don't don't worry about it. You don't have to do it from 7 a.m. to 7 a.m. That's too much for you yeah. and them. All of y'all are going to bounce up the wall, right? <laughs> and then, she, so by the time it was done and she had that first year and she and they took the test, she was like, <sighs> and, and, and I believe that was well worth it because a lot of times I just don't believe that – I don't know that the moms – most of the time it was the moms that were, where they were teaching really realized how great a job they had been doing. It just gives them some affirmation. And it's not bad to have some affirmation. Oh, 100%. Well, we've got our next guest lined up in, in the studio. Uh, Demencio, do you still maintain the website that you were uh, – as a, a candidate – can people still reach you there? Um, no, but the best way is through our ministry. Um, I'm, I'm working over um, Orange County Executive Committee's uh, Republican Executive Committee. I'm working over education for that, and I'm actually over an education coalition for Central Florida. But 
direct contact www.waoministries.org through our ministry website. You can contact us through there. Um, all the phone numbers, everything will be right there. Okay? All right. I'm going to add that to the next time you're on. I will put that on the website. And to your people, just can click on the website as they're listening in the archives or as they're listening right now and click on it, which says homeschoolreadyornot.com to get a hold of you. God bless both of you for the hard work you do, and we welcome you back any, any time. And the Thank same. You. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Have a, have a blessed day, both of you. Thank you. Have a very blessed day. All right, Pastor Demencio Barton, you can check him at WAO.org. And Taya Shoemake, you can find her at homeschoolreadyornot.com. Bring us to our next victim in on the, uh, the studio here, Christian Watson, who is also a political commentator and has his own podcast, too. So I'm going to be completely embarrassed, and probably he's going to go, I can do that better. <laughs> so I'll say, okay, now you're in for it. Good afternoon, Christian. How are you today? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing just just fine. Um, you do your own podcast uh, that people can find up on YouTube and everything, and you hit just about every subject uh, possible. And um, something that uh, got me over this past weekend, we had Memorial Day. And it was overshadowed by all this outcoming from the LBGT, XYZ, LMNOP community on their Pride Month, which was overshadowed with company after company going woke, uh, Target now having a whole line of clothing, uh, Budweiser falling flat on their face. There's something like $1.3 billion in the hole on their sales. Uh, we have uh, the Dodgers that want to have these uh, 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 group of anti-nuns going and protesting against the Catholic Church at the Dodger game. We're finding that everyone is concentrating on that, and we forgot one of the most important basics of this nation. The men and women that gave their lives for it to exist. Is our nation upside down today? Well, I think that our culture certainly is very sick and it's impoverished. But I, I hesitate to say that the entire nation's upside down. You know, America's much bigger than the cultural winds that blow in any which direction every few years or so. Cultural trends have existed since the beginning of America and early America. We used to put people's tongues in bridles like with, like, pipes on them if they lied or they gossiped about people. <laughs> so, I mean, culture changes. Uh, and ultimately, you want to get to a state where the culture is reflective of a healthy mindset. The culture is reflective of first principles. And it's reflective of the nature of our country, which is based on freedom, which is based on the individual, which is based on a lot of other things. Um, my fear is with Pride Month and other months like it, by the way, not just Pride Month, but also uh, other months like it that, that try to put identity as the, at the forefront as opposed to the actual subject. My fear is that they actually obscure um, what is really important. They actually butcher what is really important. Um, you know, I, I don't think that there should be mass concern about what individuals do in the privacy of their own home. Uh, but the fact that Pride Month kind of says there should be mass concern, not only should there be mass concern, that mass, that mass concern should be foisted in front of everybody, everywhere. It's a sign of someone who doesn't understand, you know, the limits uh, of 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 culture. Culture can't build you up. Culture can't really validate you. 
you have to have a strong sense of self to do that yourself. But in, in today's culture, we are taught via social media and the digital age to seek that sort of external approval as a means of you know being a validated human being, which I find quite concerning. So there's a lot of things that this Pride Month and other months like it, by the way, reflect in our culture. But I do not believe that it shows that America's upside down. Just the opposite. The fact that you can have this in America, a country built on pluralism, built on uh, the idea of free association, is actually a testament to America's greatness. Because in other countries, any form of expression that goes outside of the um, will of the rulers is suppressed. So even if we don't like or approve of certain forms of expression, like Pride Month, I don't approve of it personally, the fact that you can have it in America just shows you that the country the left hates is actually one of the greatest countries in the world. Yeah, the, the beauty is that we can have this conversation. Um, what I'm finding, though, is that you've got a segment of society that is in such need of attention uh, that there's no moral compass on them. It's, it, it's, you have to be completely tolerant of me, and I don't have to tolerate you. So the vast majority of Americans are being disenfranchised because we have a minute segment of it that is just demanding so much attention and demanding everything goes their way that the heck with whatever you think. How dare you even have an opinion adverse to mine? You just triggered me. Uh, is there a way to yank that back and say, hello, hello, let's put the brakes on this. Uh, yes, you need attention, uh, but maybe doing it in the public form in this way is not what you need. Maybe we need you to put you into a good psychiatrist, a good therapy group, a good pastor to sit down and talk to you, or just a bunch of people to turn around and get your head on straight. Mm. Well, I think that, that, again, what you mentioned, what you described there is evidence of a culture that does not prize reason as a value. Any culture that refuses to prize the man's use of reason, his internal faculties to understand the world as a value, is a culture that will ultimately prize passion as value. They will ultimately fall into the subjective. They will ultimately fall into our lowest and, and deepest motivations as human beings, our animalistic motivations and desires. So we have to really understand that, and we have to really grasp that. Our nation was built off of applying reason to first principles and to certain things about the natural world that could be observed by anybody who just took a few seconds to study history and a few seconds to study the world around them. It, our nation was forged from those very simple observations, which have led, in my opinion, to the most flourishing society that we've seen in the history of human existence, primarily because of our attunement to the truth. But these days, again, that same value is not held. So again, we, and this is what I try to talk about on my YouTube channel. We have to get back to philosophy. We have to get back to thinking about these issues deeply. We have to get back to a political order that goes beyond personalities and ties right into fundamental ideas. We have to get back to these kind of things that helped create us in the first place, not just because they are historically significant to the creation of the American Republic, but because they are also significant to our intellectual advancement as people. So that's the message I want to see more people you know, hitting on. That's the cause I want to see more people championing, and that's what I'm trying to champion in my advocacy. You know, I, I've done a show in the past, I called it Dumbing Down of America, uh, but we have a, a group, a political group, honestly, to to name them, um, that 
are allowing Marxist ideals uh, that are using these cultural differences that we are discussing as a wedge to divide us. And if you divide us, you can then conquer us. If you batter us uh, with, uh, uh, I'm, I'm having a brain fart here, uh, with cancel culture, because we're not woke the way you want us to be woke, uh, we can find someone protesting out on our front lawn, like the Supreme Court justices are finding. Um, they are using any and every method to make us a nation of sheeple to follow their ideals with the end result of bringing more Marxism, Marxism into our nation rather than keeping us as a republic. Is this what we're looking at, or are we finding our culture as itself, the majority of the nation, finally pushing back and saying, this is not what we stand for? Well, I think that uh, I think that you're right. That there is a concerted effort to push Marxist ideas into the American public and to embed into the American psyche that is absolutely factually correct. Um, but I would just add on to that, that this, the tactic that delivers that kind of ideology into the mind of the American psyche is the same tactic that is unfortunately commonplace on both sides of the aisle in all political conversations. Um, a lot of people don't realize that the way we talk about our politics influences the political conclusions we'll make in our reasoning. So, for example, if one side views the entire other side as people who are evil or heartless and want to throw grandma off the cliff like, like the left generally views or the right, or the right views Democrats that way as well, you're going to have both sides easily manipulated by politically motivated actors who don't have good intentions but who simply want to use them to climb the rungs of power in this country. And, and that's really what I think can be the biggest defense against Marxism. If we change the way we think about politics, if we change the way we think about our fellow political um, travelers, if we change the way we think about the proper role of American politics, so many people believe that politics should be about everything under the sun, whether you want there to be a dog park in your community, whether you want there to be a particular kind of event at a particular business on the street. But in all reality, if politics has gotten to that level of involvement in the private sphere, the private society, something is definitely wrong because our founders mm -hmm. never envisioned politics being so intertwined in our society. And by the way, forget what the founders thought, the very function of politics is categorically not supposed to be so intertwined in the daily workings of a society. Politics is meant to be confined to the realm of governance, and governance is meant to be confined to a specific set of core functions that the government has by both moral and constitutional rights, not as a social engineer, not as a sort of paternalistic nanny uh, deciding what happens in society and what doesn't happen. But unfortunately, government over the years has turned into that. So as government progressed and got stronger and illegitimately expanded into society, so did our perceptions regress into a mindset that appraises government and politics in a manner it need not be appraised in. That is not only uh, fueling the Marxist threat, it fuels any threat to the republic. The republic requires a stable foundation in order to exist and to persist. The moment that foundation is taken away by convenience and expediency and temporary concerns that ignore eternal values is the moment our republic is in peril. Well, I've I've always said, and I I'm a lot older than you. Uh, growing up in an age where I was there, smack in the middle of the uh, uh, the busing and civil rights 
Kamala Harris. I actually had to walk to school because I couldn't make the bus in time to go to the new school two and a half miles away. Um, but I saw this coming for years when they started to bring in health education into the school system. As a kid, I said, the foot is in the door because instead of teaching us about health, they're going to devolve into sex education and then deviation, which is now have proven to be true some few years later. Um, we have allowed the door to be open. We have ignored the Constitution and the basis of the foundation of this republic. And I've said from day one that once we destroy the foundation, the cement upon this building is placed, which is the Constitution, we will find this house come down around our ears. And what we're right now, we're using some a little trowel and a, a pail of cement trying to patch it back together. We've got a long way to go. We're not following the enumerated powers given to Congress uh, and making sure legislation is narrowly defined. And then Congress, in turn, has abrogated their responsibilities to a bunch of bureaucrats sitting behind closed doors laughing their butts off because they're coming up with some of the craziest things like what type of toilets we can have in our homes and how much water can flush to what type of a light bulb we can have in our fixtures at home. It has gotten out of hand. No, yes, but this all goes back to the late 1800s, late 1890s, excuse me, uh, late 1890s, early 1900s when the progressive era came into full effect and the American public mm -hmm. was cajoled by a set of intellectuals who were influenced by the workings of Otto von Bismarck and other German philosophers mm -hmm. like Hegel and the complete and utter management of society. It goes back to that. Even further than that, that, the progressive era goes back to America not having a fundamental sense of identity because the progressive era didn't happen in a vacuum. The Progressive Era came, the last major historical event before the Progressive Era, other than the Industrial Revolution, was the American Civil War. And the Civil War fractured this country in a way that I don't think anything else could possibly even hope to. Maybe that'll be a controversial statement these days, but I have not seen anything in the current historical record come even close to the one over a millions of blood uh, bodies spilled and blood lost during that conflict. And the lack of a common identity after the Civil War fuel this sort of ability for these intellectuals that imported ideas from Germany, manager ideas from Germany, to implement them into our society, into our government, and then justify them on a systemic level. That's why I think, again, this, does, this goes back to having to study philosophy. Lot, by the way, this is why I support Vivek Ramaswamy for president, because Vivek Ramaswamy actually talks about creating a national identity. And, and what that what mm -hmm. means, I think, is that he wants people to have a core understanding of Americanism. Because Americanism yes. is not just a, a designation on the census that the Census Bureau puts on the paper or that the customs office gives you. Americanism is actually a set of philosophical tenets that convey meaning about the natural world and the society's proper role in the natural world. And most people don't get that. And if you don't get that, I'm not sure you can really appreciate what America actually is. Um, so, but if you, but if people do appreciate what America actually is, that then emboldens them against ideas that would seek to subvert that, such as the Bismarckian 
managerial state, which came out from Germany and came into America and is now um, the lumbering albatross we see in Washington, whether that, that be the sort of cultural Marxism we see being pushed in every sector of society, which is trying to subvert the roles of certain institutions and certain concepts in American society that have been here for a long time from being able to stand force. I mean, I can, I can list several different antagonists to the American public right now. And all of, and their existence mm-hmm. is entirely explained. It's entirely explained by a lack of a solid national identity that came after the Civil War. That's my thesis. It's very uncommon. Some folks will disagree, but that's where I think the true trouble, trouble started during Reconstruction. Uh, it did. It did. Because uh, there was a tremendous change here in the South, uh, where at one point it was democratically led, but when the Reconstruction and the carpetbaggers, as they called them, came in, they saw which side of the bread was being buttered, and then we came up with those rhinos, Republican in name only, with Reconstruction. It was easier to get yourself elected if you had an R after your name. And then once you got into elected office, you just did whatever you wanted to do. And then we can then move on and advance up to Woodrow Wilson, a professor who followed the German philosophy and brought it into the White House. Up until that point, anyone elected president had either a military background or was someone that was a part of a working society that was only a part-time politician. You didn't have career politicians that did nothing in their lives but politics. And this is where we find there is a movement within the United States to bring us back to those core values that Vivek Ramswamy talks about. I had the pleasure of listening to him address our South Carolina GOP convention just two weekends ago. Was it two weekends ago? Jeez. Um, and he was a very powerful speaking about what America means. And coming from an immigrant family, he best can in, in, embolden the words that will help America wake up and realize what it is we we truly stand for. Not this wokeness, not this division, but there are core principles that we were founded upon and we need to reawaken them and do them peacefully and at the ballot box. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and really, I think that that beyond that as well, the reason these principles are so important Yes, they helped establish America. They helped set our country in motion. But they're so important because they are the only truths by which political organization can be morally justified. That's what distinguishes America from every other country, even our allies in Europe. So many people, and and whether it be in Europe or other countries, their, their sense of politics came from ethnicity or lineage or tradition. Well, this family has always been president, or this person, this, this family here, ha, had always had power in this town. That's how you justify their politics. America was the first nation in the history of the world. Justify their sense of politics, not by brute power, not by pure ethnicity, not by pure tradition, but by intellectual values and virtues. And that is why you have seen America become one of the fastest growing countries, one of the strongest countries militarily and economically until recent times in the history of the nation. That's why you see America innovate so much. Not just because our laws are good, but because the ideas that bind our political system are literally the only ideas under which just political organization can be structured. 
when people understand that, and, and I'm a nerd, so I, 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 I really have an affection towards that. That may be hard for most people to understand, but for people to understand that, I think that produces love of country. Because I believe in love of country, but I believe in love of country that is rational. Love is sometimes not very rational. I think that it doesn't do you any service, doesn't do your country any good, doesn't do you any good, unless you love your country on sound bases. Because if you love your country on sound bases, when your country is wrong, you can also correct them and put them back on the right track. Exactly. But but Mm -hmm. in order to produce that love of country, you have to have a deep understanding of the country. True, true. And it goes back to, uh, I always say this, uh, King Harold, the codifying of English common law. It comes back to uh, the Mayflower Compact, the Magna Carta. These all things were the basis upon which our Declaration of Independence was, was founded. And what was so interesting about the Magna Carta is that it was the British common man, the average civilian that was telling government what to do which then brought forth the Mayflower Compact, where even an indentured servant was a signature of the Mayflower Compact as treated as an equal citizen under the compact, which gave rise to our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution. Unless you understand that, you don't understand what it is to be so uniquely American, to throw off the yoke of serfdom. Before that, you had the ruling class, the tyrants, the kings, the emperors, and you had everyone else that just worked for them. You were a serf, or you were a servant, and they would tell you what your life would be. You're going to be a baker, you're going to be a blacksmith, you're going to be a farmer, and you can't rise above that class, period. Nowhere in the world, except here in the United States, you can be born to any segment of society, and achieve whatever your dream is if you're willing to fight hard for it. Yeah, because our political organization is founded on sound principles. Yeah, that's exactly correct. So I think that (laughs) America's differentiation in history and America's differentiation in philosophy and America's differentiation in, in, in our formation, all of these different uncommon things have come together to create the greatest political experiment known to man. But it won't be preserved simply by, you know, studying the history, knowing the history. It'll only be preserved if we in our everyday lives embody what it actually exactly. means to be an American. And to do that, exactly. you can't just love America, you have to study America. You have to engage in debate. You have to embrace the idea of cultural pluralism. Yes, we all come from different places, but we're united under the same umbrella. And under that umbrella, there can be differentiation, but there are an overarching set of principles that are that, that override our fundamental differences. You know, th- there are just certain things, certain ideas, that intellectual ideas, that make you distinctly American. So, yes, there's a. So your earlier point, gotten off in this big tangent here, of course, cause, but that and that's actually good because this is what I think really um, en- encompasses what it means to be an American. But to your earlier point, I don't think our culture is upside down. I just don't think enough people in our culture actually study, contemplate, and live a life of the mind. That's why I've always said, in America, I want to have a revolution of the mind. Only a revolution of the mind will save us at this point. Um, and, and guess what? Here's something else I've realized. A revolution of the mind is going to divide people. I actually don't mind division. 
think the division is actually a perfectly natural way of having society. So long as we agree on very, very basic things, like very basic, like, okay, I have property. You're not going to steal my property or hurt me. We can be divided on anything else. Um, because I'm not kin to everybody in society. Some people in society have different lifestyles than me. I want them to do with them. Mm-hmm. Some people in society have different sleeping habits than me. Some people in society have different uh, behaviors. Some people smoke, drink, all that kind of stuff. Not, not casting aspersions, but I'm not, I'm not united with everybody. Yeah, we may be Americans by virtue of our intellectual heritage, but that's just a baseline. For you to be in my life, we have to have more than just an intellectual baseline. So if we do have this revolution of the mind that I want to produce through this contemplation and this thick reading of American history, then I think we should expect more division. But that's intentional, and that's a good thing. Because it won't be ruthless and cutthroat. It'll simply be natural and the way things are supposed to be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what what we're missing today is people are, are afraid. They're afraid if they open their mouth, they're going to be, as I said, cancel culture. Uh, their jobs will be threatened. The neighborhood will harass them. Like I said, even the Supreme Court justices have protesters outside their their homes, which is against the law, and nothing's happening against to them. So it's a law for thee and not for me. But we have to have courage in our heart, every single one of us, to be able to open our mouth. And then whatever we say, be willing and able to defend it. I've had debates with friends of mine and neighbors and from opposite spectrums. And I've shared a bar stool and a drink with someone from the opposite side of the political aisle. And I told them, I bet before we leave, we will find more things in common together than we have different. And then as what we find different, we agree to disagree. We walk away, friends. We, stay, we can have a drink together, share a meal together. But understand, we're two different individuals with two different ideas, two different cultures behind us that brought us to this point in our life. But we have to find that common ground before we can have a conversation to solve and find a bridge with our differences. And that's what people are afraid of, to start the conversation because they might get canceled. Yes, I think that that, that absolutely that that's a, a big factor in many areas of the country. Absolutely, um, and I also think, but I think also there's that there's that factor. Then there's just the basic lack of interest in a lot of people. Most people are not really interested in doing the hard work of learning about these issues and discussing them because it takes them away from their, you know, digitally lived lifestyle. Some people would rather be lost in the virtual reality and other space and actually talk about issues in the real world. Some people would actually, some people actually have good excuses. Some people actually have families that they have to raise, so they're working, you know, 40, 50, 60 hours a week to raise their families. They don't have time to vote this kind of stuff. So, uh, which is one of the reasons why I'm very concerned about the mass politicization of society, because by, if you just look at the law of large numbers, in any given group of people, there's going to be some people that obviously have the ability, the tenacity, and the interest to study issues, then there will be an equal amount of people that don't have the ability or the tenacity or the interest or the time to study these issues. And those people are the ones who will get swept up by bad ideas because they may have certain ideas in their mind that they associate with what is sold to them. I was talking to somebody about this earlier because I actually have a video on this coming out very soon, that one of the ways social engineers actually manipulate people is by selling them a product they think they need. 
like, you know, when someone mm-hmm. comes to you and says, hey, I have a vacuum to sell you or I have this to sell you, you're not going to buy it unless you believe that product will give you value. Well, what if there was a way by association to make to make you believe it'll give you value without, without actually considering the merits of the product, product itself? That's what social engineering does. That's what, and that's what, by the way, what, what psychological conditioning does to animals. That's the exact same thing that's done to animals happens to humans on the scale of propaganda and mass information um, uh, campaigns. Uh, this is actually what campaigns do. <laughs> when they call you up, we got the phone bearer calling you up, hey, vote for my candidate. They're doing their best by association to make you think you need to support their guy. Now, this can be mm-hmm. used in a way that actually advances human knowledge, or this can be used in a way that actually is a weapon against human beings, which destroys us and puts us under so many undesirable conditions. And that's how it's been used. And that's how it's going to keep being used with both Pride Month, with, and I'll, I'll, say it, I'll say it as well, Black History Month. I'm a black man myself. I don't believe in Black History Month. I don't believe in it at all. I don't think that you can really conceptualize the history of a people on the basis of their skin color. You know, because when you talk about Black History Month, we're talking about, we're talking about the, the Caribbean Islanders that come into America and do exceptionally well, or the Nigerians that come to America and do exceptionally well, even better than some, better than a lot of other groups that do um, that achieve well as well. Who are we talking about? I don't, I don't like that entire framing. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. We should treat all history as if it has the same value, because history is simply a record of what has happened in the past. It is not an indication of where we're going in the future. And there are intellectuals throughout our history that have tried to assign this divine quality to history to, 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 to make it seem as if it's a horoscope or an astrology chart that will tell you exactly what will happen in the future. No. We write history mm-hmm. every single day. It is not this yeah. divine force that engineers us as human beings. So I think, but I think that the idea of Black History Month actually kind of assumes that history is more significant than it actually is. So that's a very long tangent, but all I have to say is that we have to be very careful. <laughs> Sorry. We have to be very careful with how we associate certain ideas because that exactly. can be used by tyrants to subjugate us. Well, uh, Chris, uh, Chris, we have only just a few moments because uh, Curtis is bringing our next guest in from the Heritage Foundation. And they, they bless Wonderful. me every week with one of their geniuses, and I always have a lot of fun with them. Uh, but just a thought at, before you go, because Democratic Senator Michael Bennett introduced legislation, brand new legislation, uh, which is then backing with Peter Welch, who's a Democrat from Vermont, introducing the Digital Platform Commission Act, the DPCA, they did this last week. It's a ministry of truth, which has enforceable behavior codes, catch this, for artificial intelligence and social media platforms. The very thing that you were talking about, the ministry of truth, coming to a town near you unless we kill it and it is deemed unconstitutional. I wish we had more time, Christian, and we've got to have you come back and come back soon. People can find you up on YouTube, your name, Christian Watson. You've got fantastic videos out there, and you tell the unabashed truth. God bless you, sir. God bless you, too. Thank you so much for having me and for taking, for dealing with my rant. (laughs) (laughs) No problem. Like I said, you're welcome back anytime. All right. Thank you so much. 
All right. Check it out. Christian Watson up on YouTube. He's got some excellent, excellent videos. We've got our final victim in the studio tonight, David Ditch. He has not been with us in the past, uh, but he can always ask Hans von Spakowski about us because we we just go anywhere and everywhere. Uh, So we're always welcome to have him uh, with us. And we are going to be talking about this federal budget boondoggle that got passed in the House and now just in the Senate and is going to Uncle Joe's desk for signature. Oh, my goodness. What have we got ourselves into here? Uh, real quick, uh, I I wish I was Hans, but I'm actually uh, D- David Ditch. Uh, I know what I said. I said I'm, you can ask Hans about us. We're the, the, we're the, oh, the ones sorry. that drive crazy. <laughs> sorry, little brain cloud on a, on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> yes, so this... Uh, Thanks for having me on, by the way. Um, yes, this is being touted by a lot of congressional Republicans as a historic spending cut. It's only really a historic spending cut by the really warped way that they measure things here in the swamp when they say that essentially spending isn't growing as quickly as some people want, therefore it's a cut. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So we're not advancing the spending bills at 5 or 6% per year. We're doing it only at 2%. And, oh, by the way, uh, we're going to do uh, cutting uh, spending in government in 2025 after the election. So we're going to keep on all those nice, lovely programs that make you dependent upon the federal government, the altar of government, and not at the altar of God, uh, just to keep you voting for us in office. Is that what we're looking at? This is just another exercise in trying to kick the can down the road and avoid any uh, decisions that they think are going to you know, make narrow interest groups uh, squeal and maybe cost them campaign donations. The problem is that by avoiding anything that would reduce the deficit, by avoiding potential spending cuts, the deficits have gone completely berserk over the last few years, and that's been one of the key things fueling the surge of inflation that unfortunately still hasn't gone away, even though it was supposed to be transitory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, when Trump was in office, I was buying gas at $1.65 a gallon. Yes, I was using Gas Buddy, which gave me an additional 10 cents off per gallon, but still, maximum price was, I saw prior to Trump losing, $1.86. I was buying bread at 99 cents a loaf. I am now paying $3.86 a loaf. So in a matter of just three years, we have increased almost 400% in groceries, in the cost of price of groceries. Gasoline uh, is now coming back up close to over three, going on to $4 a gallon in some places. And more than double. And we're not in an inflation. We're not heading into a full-blown recession at all. Not in the least bit, are we? And that's not, that's not the half of it. If you try to get a mortgage loan right now, you're paying through the nose. Because even though home prices in some parts of the country are coming down off of their historical highs, interest rates have gone through the roof. And as anyone who you, I, I myself have 
do not have a mortgage, but anyone can tell you the mortgage payments have as much to do with interest rates as they do with the new list price of the house. So there's so many different things that are going up in price as a result of all this endless federal spending. And when we have an opportunity with the debt limit deal to try to just chip away at the the problem even a little bit, so many people flinch and the bill is loaded up not only with spending cuts years in the future such that they're much less likely to happen, but there's also gimmicks to make it look like there are cuts, but in reality, they, uh, it's going to give them ways to increase spending this year. And when you increase spending this year, that gets factored into how much they spend in each year going forward. So again, all these cuts they're talking about, they're mostly phantoms. And the problem is going to keep rolling along. Now, I'm hearing that it's devastating to the military. What is in there that is devastating to the military? There is a fierce debate, one which I uh, don't know as much about, over how much we should, you know, how high the defense budget should be. The amount that is in this budget deal is less than what a lot of um, you know, the more defense-focused uh, uh, senators like Lindsey Graham would prefer to have. I believe it's roughly in line with the most recent Biden administration budget. And there's going to be, uh, I'm, I'm, there, apparently there are rumors about a separate supplemental bill that would address uh, some of the military needs. So for example, uh, a portion of the aid that was sent to Ukraine was ammunition, and the military needs to build the ammunition stocks back up in the wake of that, and that might be taken care of in a supplemental bill. Mm. So it's not in this, but it will be further down the road. It will be there. But, oh, wait a minute. They said well, you wanted to cut back on government de- dependency, so we're going to go after the SNAP program, the food stamp program. And we've been clamoring for this, you know, uh, for uh, welfare and other programs. You know, welfare to work, SNAP, you know, if you're el- eligible to work, you've got to do some sort of work uh, before you get the benefits. But it doesn't actually reduce the benefits. It's just that you're going to keep on getting the benefits if you work. Am I looking at this right? Well, what happened here, this is such a mess. So there are work requirements related to food stamps, and they apply to certain categories of people. And this, um, in theory, they were going to expand some of the eligibility requirements um, which include people uh, into their 50s. However, because a lot of more left-wing Democrats who ended up voting for the bill were pitching a fit about anything that would get people out of dependency for once, um, there were some changes that would remove work requirements from certain groups of people. And as it turned out, more people were removed from work requirements than were added. So this is actually going to increase food stamp spending. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, what about uh, IRS funding? Um, wait a minute. Didn't they just hire 80,000 new armed IRS agents? Well, okay. The, the, uh, there was talk about, you know, okay, so last year Democrats passed a package that would fund the IRS. You know, most of the money would be going t- towards hiring auditors rather than people who would be you know, potentially kicking down people's doors. But there would be some of that as well. And one of the things that Republicans were trying to get in this package would be sucking some of that money out. Unfortunately, they're, again, rather than pulling all that money away, they shift a tiny little portion out. I don't know exactly how you know how many, you know, if it's even into the thousands of fewer IRS agents we would have, but the net result is the vast majority of those people that they're planning to hire are still going to get hired. They are still going to be auditing people. And I looked at, uh, I, I found a map someone had made of where IRS audit rates are the highest. And one of the areas that, re- that like stands out if you know where groups of people live is across the South, the area that's you know, colloquially re- referred to as the Black Belt because of the high a- number of African Americans, these are areas that have a high use of certain government programs like food stamps, like earned income tax credit, and auditors tend to get more results going after poor people on welfare programs than they do going after wealthy households that have all their you know, tax records meticulously prepared by professionals. Oh, so 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 this is this is the uh, secured eighty billion that they have for the next decade in new funding to enforce the tax code, as they say, for the wealthy Americans uh, that they put into the other budget, and they said it was going to yield them an additional two hundred billion dollars in additional revenue. So if you do any sort of a cutback for twenty four and twenty five, it's not going to matter because you've already funded us for the next ten years. Exactly. And they didn't touch that money hardly at all. And again, it's it's all these people. They're going to be shaking down all you know, shaking down families, shaking down businesses for as many pennies as they can find, all to fuel the relentless onslaught of spending. Well, wait a minute, but 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 they're cutting it back in this area. There has to be a cutback in this area, the COVID clawback. Is it really a clawback? So there is a there is a unfortunately very small at this point portion of the money that was allocated during the pandemic that hadn't been spent yet, and this is another one of those gimmicks. And this is something that you know, when I saw this, this is the sort of thing that you know I almost threw my phone through the wall. Rather than just saying, okay, at this point, you know, the pandemic is over, the emergency is over, let's just get rid of this spending, let's do one good thing to reduce the deficit, what they're going to do is apply those savings to the rest of the government spending, So, and in some cases, some of this money that was authorized was not actually going to be spent. 
So by removing the authorization and applying it somewhere else, you're turning money that wasn't going to be spent into money that is going to be spent. So this thing that on paper is going to be saving is in fact going to be adding to deficits. It's it's the kind of accounting that you only see on Capitol Hill, and it's part of why the national debt is at over $30 trillion at this point. But as I understand it, with the COVID clawback, some, as they write, some of the funds would be retained uh, to vaccine funding, but also housing assistance and support for Native Americans. So, you know, there's not going to be a single dollar saved in that one. But let's let's move forward to what the Republicans call a huge savings. Uh, they put in a budget mechanism known as PAYGO. And why should we be afraid of that? It sounds, you know, pay as you go. Makes sense, doesn't it? Um, well, it depends on what you're referring to. So there's uh, something that they uh, uh, or Okay, if I'm remembering this correctly, again, there's there's so many provisions in this. What they're trying to do is uh, is apply a um, sort of an accounting mechanism to federal regulation, because the Biden administration has gone absolutely haywire, issuing all kinds of red tape. That increased, you know, the increased government spending, the increased cost for businesses, trying to micromanage the economy. And in theory, this would be a way to sort of reel that impulse in. Unfortunately, it includes a, you know, not just a loophole, it includes a barn door sized loophole <laughs> that yeah, would essentially, <laughs> if the administration feels really strongly about a rule and they feel you know, the activists who really run the show there far more than Biden does feel strongly about pretty much everything. If they really want something, they can get it and there's not a lot Congress can do to stop them. So this, you know, this, there were some much stronger reforms in the package that House Republicans passed in late April this do you just call this watered down would be an understatement. <laughs> so in other words, there's this huge waiver that they can use that the budget director can use, and it would limit judicial review on any decisions. So whatever waiver they decide that any special interest wants in place is going to go through, and you can call it pay as you go, but hey, we're not, we're just not going to pay attention to it, are we? No, and. It- I have to say, this is a particular issue that as I've learned more and more about it, I mean, I remember at various times over the last couple decades as Biden's stature increased, there was a sense that, oh, he's a more moderate Democrat. You know, he's not like a Bernie Sanders. But when you actually look at the decisions that his administration has made, and in particular to me, the decisions that have been going on within federal agencies. He's not just more aggressive than a moderate. He makes, he practically makes the, the Obama administration look like a Republican. I mean, <laughs> wild. How, how far to the left he's gone. 
And there's so many things that, unfortunately, you, you need to be you know, sort of a, a hardcore policy nerd to ever see the, find out about these things because they'll never get the time of day in the mainstream press. No, well, no, baby. no. You have to actually delve, delve into all this. Curtis, go ahead. Uh, we, we for the most part, know that has been guided by others. Uh, would you not say that if uh, people around him who are driving the agenda, this left-wing gen- agenda? That is really my sense. You know, again, like you can say what you want about President Obama, but he was the one making the key decisions. And there were times where he, you know, his political sensibilities meant that he sort of tapped the brakes on the excesses of some of his left-wing staffers. Biden doesn't have the energy to, to sort of run, run herd on his staffers, and they have practically free reign. Well, now, well, over Obama, um, I always said it was Barry, Valerie Jarrett that was pulling the strings, whether that's true or not, but that was just my personal opinion. Um, they made an agreement in order to get this between McCarthy and Biden to go after the student loan repayment. But there's a lot of pitfalls in this because there's something I think 44 million people will have to restart making payments that have been on hold for the last three years. In the interim, a lot of those loans were bought out by different companies. so They may not even know who holds their loan at this point. And if they don't make a payment, they're going to incur some fees. But somehow or other, your repayment of your student loan is tied into your income. And this is so confusing. I think in the end, they're just going to throw their hands up in the air and go, well, it was a bad idea, so we're going to abandon it, so forget about it. That's what I'm thinking. I mean, honestly, your guess is as good as mine at this point. I mean, there's still a a major court case that's hanging out in the air, and I don't know whether that would go away as a result of this deal. Um, And Again, this is something where I feel like almost you know, you can hope that the administration will abide by the agreement, but again, they're so aggressive and they really seem to believe that expecting people to repay their loans rather than have taxpayers repay their loans is some sort of a crisis. I mean, they spent you know, the... While there was a recession because of the pandemic in you know, spring of 2020, things bounced back fairly quickly. But they have kept claiming that the economy, the economy that on the one hand Democrats claim is like the strongest economy of all time, on the other hand they claim the economy is so bad that no one can repay their student loans. We all know what's really going on here. They view college-educated adults, especially young adults, as a major left-wing constituency, they want to throw as many taxpayer dollars as them as possible. And, again, the whole thing has become so convoluted because of what the Biden administration has been doing, it remains to be seen what effect the debt limit deal will actually have on it. Mm. Well, now, there was something in the 
bill that has something about $8.8 billion going to Union Station. $8.8 billion to Union Station? Yeah, I, I, I do want to – I will uh, say that that was actually not – fortunately, uh, this is one thing that is not in the package. However, it's something that is looming as you know, just one of many small dark clouds of the uh, – in, in, on the horizon for taxpayers. So in Washington, D.C., you know, a couple blocks north of the Capitol is a big train station known as Union Station. And I'm hoping that most of your listeners have not had to go there anytime recently because what was once a bustling, active, busy train station is now empty. It, it is unfortunately a congregating location for Washington, D.C.'s homeless population. There's a lot of crime. There's a lot of drug use. And there's not a lot of people riding trains and buses. But that Mm -hmm. doesn't stop the institutional left from wanting to spend $8.8 billion with a B dollars on a massive expansion of the train station that is not warranted by how many people actually use it. Yeah, that's true. That is true. Now, with this whole passing of the budget through the House, um, there were some calls uh, for uh, McCarthy might face a vacate motion. You know, what is that, and is it real, or is it just a lot of hot air going around right now? So there, yeah, that's something I would say definitely to keep an eye on. It doesn't seem to be imminent. So one of the things that can happen is in the House, if a large enough group of members, in particular members who voted for McCarthy to become speaker in the first place, if they come together and sign, I I don't know if it's a a petition or a, a statement or resolution or something along those lines, it would essentially bring up a new vote on who should be the House Speaker, and potentially that could oust McCarthy as Speaker of the House and you know, force new elections on who would become Speaker. Um, again, I, I haven't seen anything about this in the last uh, 24, 48 hours or so. I think it was... Um, But again, when you saw how many Republicans were willing to vote against the debt limit deal, a lot, if not practically all of those members, are unhappy with what McCarthy negotiated. And Mm -hmm. if things keep taking turns for the worse, he might have an insurrection on his hands. Absolutely. Now, this was an article I pulled up yesterday that was in Newsmax by Eric Mack, and it was Ken Buck, the Republican out of Colorado, that told Newsmax uh, on Greg Kelly reports uh, that it is something that they're going to be uh, looking at. Uh, He stated, quote, I really think this is a piece of legislation that is going to put Kevin McCarthy at risk, Um, because there were 71 Republicans who voted against it. Um, this is going to be very interesting because the last one who changed his vote from a yes to no that I knew of was Matt Gates, 
And Matt Gates unusually is hosting a show for a, a current co-host, a current host, I, I believe this week uh, on Newsmax. So I think it's an interesting flip with Matt Gates at a really interesting time too. Yeah, there, I mean, this is. If anyone can guess what's going to be happening in the House of Representatives two weeks from now, let alone you know between now and the elections, well, you know, you're Nostradamus because it is. <laughs> there, there's a lot of turmoil right now. There is. Well, David, we're down to our last three minutes, and it has been a pleasure. We do want you to come back on. Uh, Hannah Davis has been coming on every week ever since uh, Tom left as our our liaison with Heritage. Uh, But just say, hey, ladies, she's crazy, but I like talking to her. (laughs) And say, get me back on that crazy lady. (laughs) I I, I have to say that I, I so appreciate the you know, the opportunity to speak to the American people because oftentimes, you know, when you're when you're a policy analyst like me, you get you're stuck in an office, you're stuck here in the sw- the bubble of the swamp, and we rely on outlets to get the word out. Well, we're here, and we are that outlet for you, David. People can find you at heritage.org, where you do fantastic work. There's a link on the show uh, uh, description page that they can click on and go directly over to the work you and the rest of everyone at Heritage are doing. God bless you, and thank you very much. Take care. Have a great weekend. You too. David Ditch, find him at heritage.org. I want to thank uh, everyone for joining us, all the comments that were going on inside the chat rooms here, over on Facebook, YouTube, my show over here on Blog Talk Radio. And know that we're also on additional outlets now under Substack at at southernsense.com and Apple and Spotify and Simplecast, former Stitcher and TuneIn and Podcast, as well as iHeart. And, oh, my goodness, we're just all over the place and growing. And a special shout-out to Sue, Sweet Sue, for calling in with her questions. We're down oh, in yeah. our last two minutes, Curtis, and we already have a bunch of guests lined up. We Again, Heritage, we have Mark Tapscott coming up next week. We have Stanley Ridgely. Uh, he's, uh, Dr. Ridgely has a new book out, a Brutal Voice, which I'm going to be reading this week. And we have mm-hmm. Rick Mehta, who ran for um, Senate. Uh, he's going to be talking to us. He's also a Georgetown prof- professor. So we got a lot going on, and we will be back next week, same bad time, same bad station. Take care, y'all. All right. Now, if I can get the right mouse to work, well, we will leave you with the start of Gary Pecorella, Save America. So good night, and God bless, and be safe out there. And remember to check out our website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, and look for us everywhere else. Come on, play. I'm free for this land I love. America, America, the home of the free. But there are people making plans to change America. They've no respect for her or what matters most to me. That's why I stand for the plan and I kneel at the cross. No, 
Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.